The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This episode comes to you from an instructional course presented at AUA 2023. For more information, including how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support is provided by Estellas and Eurovant Sciences, Inc. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for spending time with us here. Uh, we hope this can be a little bit interactive. We don't want to make it too dry, especially 4 o'clock in the afternoon, even though we're early in the meeting, so everybody should still have energy. But uh, it's hard late in the afternoon with all travels and different time zones. We do have, this is being live streamed, and we have a lot of colleagues online with us as well. So we will have some, hopefully, some great questions coming in from out in the you know, web sphere, um, cyber sphere, but all, please feel free to come up to the microphone and ask questions. And again, we're going to make this very case-based. It will be based on the guidelines, but we don't want it to be another rigid guidelines discussion. We want to make it a little bit more interesting and practical for you all. So uh, with that, I'd like to introduce my faculty member here, my partner, Dr. Sandy Vasavada from Cleveland Clinic. Thanks. From the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, obviously. Uh, he is the director of the public floor team there. And Dr. Ginsburg, who everybody's running around, he's got one other obligation, so he's going to be a little bit late, uh, but he will be here. Uh, Dr. Ginsburg uh, is a professor at uh, USC in Southern California, Los Angeles. And my name is Kathleen Kabashi, and I'm in Houston at Houston Methodist Hospital. And we, again, thank you for being here today. So with that, I think I guess I have to stand at the podium to, to advance the slides. Okay. So again, it's our privilege to be here today. David will be here, Sandip, and myself. These are our disclosures. Um, now, the AUA SUFU OAB guidelines have been updated since the original iteration back in 2012 uh, and now have fourth line therapy. So, first line is, is behavioral therapy, dietary modification, and physical therapy. Second line brings in medications, and there's been a lot of discussion about where antimuscarinics fit into our therapies. Third line therapies are what we're going to be focusing mostly on today, and that's neuromodulation either at the tibial nerve, posterior tibial nerve, or sacral neuromodulation, and onobotulinum toxin, and again, some tips and tricks there. And then fourth line becomes augmentation, cystoplasty, or urinary diversion. So what we're going to do here is, again, a very informal format. It's going to be case-based discussion. Hopefully, we can throw the ball back and forth a little bit. Um, a little look toward the future so you can see what's on the horizon. And you know, every year it gets closer. Now some of these things are, are commercially available that Dr. Spasavada will give us a little overview about toward the end. Um, we, will, we just did the audience response. We don't have that interspersed in the course. We'll do a post-test afterwards with the same question. So, and then very open discussion, hopefully. So the cases that we're going to use to base our discussions upon are a female patient with refractory OAB, a male patient with refractory OAB, dual incontinence, a dual incontinence patient, and neurogenic bladder, because they're all just a little different, and they all have little subtle things that would take you to a different uh, therapy. So the take-home messages, which I'm going to give you first, and hopefully we can hit these goals today, are when do we introduce third-line therapies? Um, some counseling tips, like the language that you use and when you introduce things, is one third-line therapy better than another uh, for a given patient? Um, really optimizing 
the, the flow in your clinic, which is part of how you decide which therapies you might choose. I think this is next one is really important is engaging and empowering your staff to really be an important part of your therapeutic team. It really empowers them. It really makes them feel as important as they deserve to, and, and it helps really get the flow going and make sure we provide you know, optimal service for our patients. Minimize the hassle factor for you and the patients and your staff, um, optimizing lead placement and some a little bit of troubleshooting. So case number one, let's get down to it. A 54-year-old healthy woman with overactive bladder, she's failed conservative therapies and is not really enthusiastic about medications. Senep, do you have to do medications? First of all, what do the guidelines say and what, is, what do you do in your practice? Yeah, so you definitely don't have to do medications. Um, you know, most often we'll typically talk about first-line therapy. So first-line therapy meaning avoiding, you know, caffeine. Probably it's the biggest conversation piece I would start with. It's the biggest stimulant that we'll typically see in a regular basis. And then, you know, adding physical therapy if they want to just do things on their own, pelvic floor exercises. It's interesting as we talk about fancier, you know, third-line options, many of the insurance companies want some level of documentation. Now, documentation doesn't mean that patient has to have gone through physical therapy, but at least you've talked and suggested these conservative matter- measures. So that's where you're adding, um, you know, pelvic floor exercises. And so just having, you know, in, in Epic or in our electronic medical records, we have these dot phrases. So somehow or another to kind of complete that conversation that you had with the patient would be helpful. It's a little frustrating, isn't it? I'm sure how many of you have experienced that your insurance companies are the ones that are determining whether or not you can move on to something, right? So it's an external factor that's not clinical medicine. It's just the world we live in, unfortunately. How many medications do you put your patients on, Sandip, in, in your practice, regardless of the insurance? You know, sometimes the insurance says you have to do two or three. Do, right. How many do you try or do you just... Yeah, when, we, when we wrote the guidelines originally, we never wanted to define refractory because I, I think kind of in my heart of hearts, if you try one and it doesn't work, we've got very little efficacy data that shows that if you switch it to another, I'm like, oh, my God, thank God you put me on this other one because that took me to, uh, you know, perfect. We know that that's probably not yeah. true. So one to two, I think, is probably acceptable. Right, so how many of you all are still using anti-muscarinics? Are you still? Yeah. I think, you know, you just have to counsel your patients and be aware of the the cognitive side effects and that sort of thing. So beta-3 agonists are great, but, you know, because they're still new-ish, insurance companies often don't don't cover. So, you know, then you're in a bind. But I think if you document, well, this is not affordable or this is, you know, we're concerned about the cognitive side effects, that sort of thing, that's, I think, at least addressing it for the insurance companies. I'm finding that they're getting a little bit more reasonable. But. Can I ask you a question? Because yeah. this came up. A physician asked me, do I need to document the cognitive risk profile, right? Because we're all in the same boat. I saw a lot of hands up on anti-muscarinics, and my hand is up too. But if we prescribe an anti-muscarinic, because we have to because of cost, and, and that's the big reason, that do you document all the cognitive potential? Because... They felt like they were potentially liable should the patient have some issue, like plowing to a school bus or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I document that we have the conversation so that they're aware. Perfect timing. The next question was going to be for you, Dr. Ginsburg. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little, I'm joking a little bit. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I do document that we have that conversation because that's important. And it gets you to third line therapy a little bit quicker than we used to get there for, you know, practical and clinical reasons. All right. So any other information you need? When, when do you in, introduce third line therapies to your patients? Do you introduce it, you know, early on in your relationship with them? Or do you wait until you say, come back if it doesn't work? So 
um, while Dave's getting situation. I mean, I, I do tend to, if I'm already thinking this patient may be a candidate for third line, I do like to introduce that concept early. So, ma'am, we're going to try you on some of these uh, simple things. We're going to avoid caffeine. We're going to do pelvic floor exercises. Today, it's available to you if you would like to try a medication. We can certainly do that. And then, listen, if it doesn't work, we have other options that may include things like Botox and, and I kind of say pacemaker-like devices for the bladder and, and things like that. And, and not going into huge details, but at least mentioning it to them so that they never feel it's one medication after the other after the other. How about you, David? Um, no, I think that's important. Um, sorry I'm late. I was at a debate. Now I'm sweaty running over from the debate. Um, <laughs> but uh, on the other side of the convention center. Um, but um, I, I think there's a couple of things that are important to what Sandup said. One is... You know, when we introduce medications, I think it's also important to tell patients this is not the last option and we will have other options so they understand there's something else going to be there. And you can kind of get a sense, too, of patient bother and patient severity. And when you get those patients, things can be a little more severe. Um, you kind of have a sense maybe the medications aren't going to be a home run. You know, those are, there are those where, um, you know, I may actually give them handouts regarding botulinum toxin and both types of neuromodulation at the time that we had that initial therapy saying these are some things we may want to consider um, if oral medications don't work or if pelvic floor physical therapy doesn't work or a combination of the two. So I, I think it's good to start early just so the patient understands that, yeah, we're going to have other options if the medications don't work. I have a thing called the incontinence tree that shows a bladder in the middle and it's got stress incontinence on one side and overactive bladder on the other side because they don't know that the diff there's a difference between the two, right? So I draw pictures and I show them and then I say, this is plan A, you know? Try to avoid anything that tickles your bladder like caffeine or alcohol. You can have it, but if you've got the window seat on the plane and you're getting on, you don't want to get on with a big old Starbucks. And if you're going to the movies after you have a glass of wine, you don't want to sit in the middle of the middle, right? So just like strategy, right? And then medications, and I say, and I draw a little thing, and I say, this is plan A. This is the homework. This is plan A. If plan A doesn't fly, there's plan B, C, and D in no particular order. And I just give them a little blurb at the time that I see them the first time. So, so they know there's a reason to come back, right? So I say, this is, you know, sort of modern day acupuncture. This is a pacemaker. And this is the same Botox people put in their face. We can put it in your bladder. And all of a sudden, this sort of friendly language is, and we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about our scripting and some of the ideas of the language that we use to make it less intimidating for patients. But I think it's important for them to know, like if you just give them a prescription and say, come back if it doesn't work, you will never see them again, right? If you say, it's just like going to the dentist. If you don't make your next teeth cleaning appointment when you leave, it's going to be an emergency a year and a half later when you realize you're totally overdue, right? So we say, come back in four to six weeks. These are the things we're going to talk about if plan A doesn't fly. Um, and, you know, so they know there's a reason to come back. Are there any other scripting things? Like I tell them, you know, neuromodulation, sacral neuromodulation, I say you get a little battery that's about the size of an Oreo cookie. We put it in under sort of wisdom tooth colonoscopy kind of sedation. You know, and it's, you know, like stuff like that to make it a little less scary for them. What about you guys? Do you guys have buzzwords you use? Or? Um, well, actually, since when we first started doing this course, I actually have completely embraced your idea of telling them that the anesthesia is like having colonoscopy when you do neuromodulation, because most folks have had at least one colonoscopy. Not everyone, but a lot of them are getting theirs, and, and they get that, and they realize it's 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 not a big deal. Um, and I used to try to really describe like a, what botulinum toxin was, and a toxin, and neurotoxin, and now I just kind of, you know, like you said, like Botox, and it's no different, and, and you know, people know what Botox is, and, and then with uh, tibial nerve, you know, again, it's just, you know, a little needle, just like acupuncture, a little needle in there, and it's, you know, I think you, the important is, is, is 
de-emphasizing how invasive all of these are because they are so minimally invasive. Um, you know, I think, and when we talk about the risk, and we'll talk a little bit about this when I talk about botulinum toxin, it's just like, you know, the risk of your quote unquote urinary retention. I'm like, these patients aren't going into retention. Yeah. That's not happening. They may need to catheterize once or twice, but they're not going into retention. And it's, you know, and they realize that, you know, well, botulinum toxin efficacy may be up to six months. You're not going to have to use a catheter if it's the rare, the rare patient. It's not going to be the entire time. So it's making sure they understand that there are risks, but don't overblow them or make them overblow them in their own mind because we didn't explain it optimally for them to appreciate that. Yeah, so I think to take the time to just make it friendly and less scary. So I'm going to push this along a little bit so, so we can get to the meat of all of this stuff. But does data help you choose or how do you choose what, what thing for what patient? I mean, I guess we'll talk about this in the cases because we'll, there are specific um, examples for why we choose one over the other. But I think the take-home message is for this particular simple, straightforward case is that, you know, introduce it early so they're thinking about it already. They know there's a reason to come back because a lot of people are going to go on to third-line therapies. I'm going to tell you, the literature says that about 80% of patients are no longer on medications by one year for whatever reason, cost, efficacy, lack of efficacy, side effects, whatever it is. And so what do you do with those patients? You know, I mean, those are patients that we really but, can make a difference and, for. And it's not because they all of a sudden just got better. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to case number two. 62-year-old um, male with OAB symptoms, urgency with occasional close calls, but he, you know, pretty much makes it. He's got frequency, particularly at night, mild obstructive symptoms. Again, he's 62, so you got to think about what might be going on there. PVR of 20. He's failed a beta-3 agonist, and he declines anti-muscarinics. Okay, so are there caveats for a male? Either of you, Sandip? Yeah, I guess, you know, you, you want to start to think about is the prostate having some level of a component here, right? I think there's always that concern in a male as opposed to the female that is there a BPH component, even if he doesn't admit to major, you know, emptying issues or obstructive voiding symptoms, right? Wouldn't you guys think that same thing? Right, well, I mean, I th yeah, it's... It's always that we're in that fork in the road, right? Are we going down a BPH road or are we going down an overactive bladder third tier road? Exactly. Do you do your so, dynamics before these? Well, it, it's a, some, yes, but not all the time. So, you know, if this patient comes in and he has these symptoms and we get a PVR and it's low and a zero flow is great and he's got a high flow, that's someone I'm much less concerned about having some obstructive voiding symptoms and I would feel much more comfortable going down a third tier overactive bladder pathway if he's failed oral medications. If this patient comes in and he has poor flow, obstructive voiding symptoms with his urgency and urgent incontinence, or his PVR is a, also 180 or whatever it may be, then you know the question is, well, gosh, do I need to now, you know, he's not on an alpha blocker, do you add an alpha blocker? Uh, that doesn't make him better. Then are you gonna do something along the, the uh, a, a more prostate ablative kind of uh, road? And you know, it's interesting because he's not really, this patient's not complaining about obstructive voiding symptoms, but he may very well have them, mm -hmm. and that's gonna impact how you make your decision. So you to have to understand that. that. You know, do you have slow flow? Do you, is there intermittency? Does your stream start and stop? Do you have to wait for it to start? And then, you know, his PVR is 20, but if you give him Botox, or on a botulinum toxin, sorry, I'm trying to remember to not say the trade, the trade name, but um, you, know, you, you could put them into retention. So, I mean, I think if, you know, it's, a, it's a bit of a judgment call, but your dynamics and pressure flow study is a tool that we should not. Right, um, I mean, discuss. I would say like in my practice where I see a lot of women, a lot of neurogenics would take out for this conversation and a lot of men with LUTs, I do way more urodynamics on the male patients mm. than the female patients because just, you just don't know which, which road to take. Well, so, you know, in this patient, we decide to do PTNS. So just for starters, 
stand up. I, I, should I trade places with yeah, you so you can yeah. advance yourself? We're going to talk a little bit about PTNS, and I think this person might be a really good person to consider PTNS on. Okay, so, so let's talk about PTNS and, and how do you introduce, I think most of us would say it's kind of like acupuncture. Patients understand that, they can um, really relate to that. It, and then, you know, really describing what it is and then how often and sort of the commitment. I think that's going to be one of the main things, you know, to do. So what is it? Um, it's a peripheral neuromodulation technique. So, you know, when we're thinking about sacral neuromodulation, central nervous system, this is the peripheral nervous system. And it actually relies on something called carryover. So carryover means... Today's what Friday. If I'm doing a PTNS today, I want my bladder behaving next Tuesday when I'm going out to a social event. So, how does that work? Because it's not actively being done at that same exact time. So it's relying on carryover. So it's still in the more of a phenomenon in the peripheral nervous system that even though you're not delivering active stimulation, it's still receiving benefits. So it kind of hits you, and then it starts to trail off, and then you have to do it again a week later. Hit it again, and you do it again, and it kind of keeps doing that for. 12 weeks and then once a month after that. So this is the, the basis has been based on you know, Chinese acupuncture techniques from years ago. Uh, the tibial nerve, again, when you think of it as it's a terminal projection of a conglomeration of nerves from the lower, lower aspect of the back. So, so really from L4-5 all the way down to the earlier S3, S1-2-3 nerve roots that coalesce and kind of go down to an area that we access in the uh, you know, medial portion of the ankle. So this is something really pretty good. So you gotta have a committed patient. They have to be willing to come in and out of your office every week for 12 weeks and then once a month thereafter. So in a referral practice, if you live in a big city, your practice is there, but the patient lives an hour and a half away, I think that's gonna be asking a lot of, it, of the patient to do that kind of travel, travel and driving. Um, the nice thing about it is from a therapeutic standpoint, it's pretty simple and easy. There's no major side effects or risks. It's pretty easy to do. So that patient's gonna come in, um, they'll kind of kick their foot up on a, on a chair or a, or a um, bench of some sort, and then we place this small 34 gauge needle. Uh, it's interesting when the, the reps were actually showing our nurses how to do it, they would show it on themselves. This lower leg area is somewhat, I won't say insensate, but less sensate than other parts of our body. So really patients don't tend to feel pain when you do this. And then once you start to do it, it's almost completely insensate. Uh, there's a grounding pad. And then we usually look for a little bit of flexion in the big toe to say that we're stimulating the right nerve and that that's the right spot. So then they come in once a week for 12 weeks. The treatment, like as I said, is elevated. The 34 gauge needle goes in. And then, you know, low voltage stimulation typically for 30 minutes, and that's how it's done. Contraindications, there's actually very few, but there's some significant ones. Cardiac pacemakers or defibrillators, someone who's pregnant is not approved in those patients, someone who's seeking pregnancy, well, it's a little harder to always put that together. And then patients with probably significant nerve damage, and that would be a little bit more of a relative contraindication. So think of someone who's diabetic, they have a distal or peripheral neuropathy. Can I still do it? I, I could. I, am I gonna get the same efficacy? Probably not, probably not. At least that's the long belief. Do people tolerate it well? I mean, there's essentially no side effects. You know, it's a simple, easy therapy to do. Um, overall successes are probably equivalent to medication. So I almost would call it a, a medication without the side effects. So again, the commitment is you have to come into the office weekly, once a month after that even to get that benefit. From a durability standpoint, the patients who tend to do well at 12 weeks and then they're getting monthly after that, do, they do tend to continue to maintain benefit. So it's, it's nice. You can look at the patient in the eye and say, look, 
there's a good chance you'll continue to do this and do well. Um, the problem is you have to keep doing it. And so that's the big challenge. Are they going to be have to come into the office and, and is it a bit of a chore at some point? My guess is those patients start to drop off for a variety of reasons. Again, other logistics and travel. Um, maybe sometimes they don't feel like they're getting as much benefit, so then they drop off after that. Talking about a couple more things in terms of the outcomes, again, probably about 60-ish percent that patients will see significant enough benefit. There is data that shows if you want to get even better success rates, you can add medications. And sometimes the patients have already done that themselves, right? I mean, they're always good as one thing, but see if I can get better. And they're always looking for that. And so typically, to get a better improvement, the data would show that you're adding medications is going to help. Now, if they were having side effects from medications or there's a cost issue, now you know you have to ask yourself, is that really going to be the advisable course to go in? They typically should complete the full 12 weeks. Now, if they've gone through week six and seven and you had to get the cheerly pom-poms out and really try to tell them, come on, it's going to keep working, and it's hard for us to gauge that. And I think that's where I've struggled. If someone's at week six, seven, eight, and they're really not seeing benefits, I'm not so sure they're going to see it at week 12. So I'll offer it to them. <clears throat> and then they can make that decision if they want to complete the full course. And then the maintenance therapy has to continue as well. But the recommendations are that you complete the full 12, as Dr. Vizavada said here. I mean, that's sort of um, the dogma, really, is that right. they, we do see people who aren't quite successful halfway through, and so we try to encourage them to complete the 12. Exactly, exactly. Again, a few unknowns. Um, can we achieve a therapy that allows for better patient compliance? Right, this is the rub. You, know, you have to come in weekly. And this is where, as we'll talk about later, you know, implantable tibial nerve implants will, will start to come up. And can this therapy have better results if administered more often? This one, again, minimal data. So if, if someone was able to do this twice a week, um, three times a week, could they get better data and better results? There's little bits that suggest maybe improvement. That's, again, where the tibial implants come in because they're going to be doing it much more continuously instead of once a week. And that way, there is a, a belief that you're going to start to see efficacy increase. So to say tibial nerve stimulation works pretty well, and I can get better if I can get an implantable, probably does make some sense because it's probably being delivered more often. So stand up like, and, you know, I know there's data, for example, in neurogenics where it, there's, they'll do well with, you know, they do better with stimulation every two weeks, you know, or do you do better with stimulation twice a week, whatever it is. So how do you do that often? And if you do, have you run into issues with the payers actually paying yeah. for it, which is probably the biggest challenge, right? I, I think exactly. That, that would be the biggest challenge. Are they going to pay for that? Even that, and for those of you who know probably billing and coding much better than I do, I mean, you, you, you know, room utilization, if you're charging room costs, all that, someone's going to throw a flag on that, and I think that's going to be the limitation most often. I mean, I think this hasn't taken off as much as it probably deserves to from a epic, you know, from a clinical standpoint because of the practical stuff. People don't want to drive into the city and pay for parking, and you know, so I think the implantables, which again, uh, Dr. Vasavna is going to go over with us in a bit, are, are going to be a potential game changer if their efficacy is as high as it seems to be. And so just kind of summarizing kind of pros. The pros, it's simple and easy, minimal of any side effects. That's the really nice thing. The con, as, as Dr. Kabash alluded to, 
these are patients who have to make the logistics happen so that they can come in on a weekly basis. I have patients who live literally across the street from some of our facilities, and they're like, I, I can't come in every week. If you live in Cleveland, it's going to snow half the year. That's another limitation. So there's just other factors. Um, but it's really minimally invasive. Patients tolerate it extremely well. Um, and, and then again, they have to continue to be committed to doing this weekly and then once a month after they complete the therapy course. All right, so we'll go into case three. You want to present? You want me to keep going? Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll stand up and talk about it, but you can introduce it. Okay, so let's do case three. So this is a 46-year-old woman with dual incontinence. So for those of you who don't know, dual incontinence is bladder and bowel incontinence. She's failed first and second line therapies for overactive bladder, and her fecal incontinence is in spite of fiber intake and physical therapy. So that's kind of more first-line therapy even for a fecal incontinence. So we try to do some sort of bulking therapies, we say, to, to kind of firm things up, and then physical therapy as well. And in this case, why would we talk about sacral neuromodulation? Yep. Because it has efficacy for both therapies. So you know, as KK is getting up, you know, you had had that slide. Does data help us choose? And you know, data very much helps us choose. But I you know, want you to appreciate sometimes it's help us choose why we would do one therapy, like sacral neuromodulation, some with dual incontinence. Sometimes it also helps us choose why we would not want to do certain therapies. You know, for example. You know, someone who has a highly, a fairly high PVR and you wouldn't consider a botulinum toxin, you probably would, would avoid that. So it helps you avoid and choose depending on how you're making decisions. Yeah, these are some of the things. So on a botulinum toxin, I say to patients, this is one of my little things too, I say, you know, you've got, so first of all, we as urologists should ask them about the bowel also because you'll be surprised how many people, first of all, I'm not going to volunteer that obviously, but how common it is. Um, it's incredibly common. And so when you open the door for them, they, they come out with these you know, very sensitive private issues, but you can really make a difference for them. And if they do have a, a bowel component to it, I tell them, listen, bowel and bladder have the same command central, right? Command central is the same place. So if sometimes we get a little icing on the cake, a little bonus that it helps with both. Okay. And so on a botulinum toxin would probably not be the best option for someone who's got dual incontinence because you're only going to help the bladder where you have some options that can help both. That would be both PTNS and sacral neuromodulation, but for the practical reasons, we, we, we don't usually go to PTNS yet, and again, that might change with a little bit of time. But sacral neuromodulation, is, we'll call it SNS for, for short, um, is an easy option, actually. It's just intimidating to patients if we tell them, oh, we're going to put a computer in your upper buttock, you know, and you're going to walk around with this thing in your back. We, we call it a pacemaker. I mean, it's a little bit more friendly. It doesn't seem as intimidating. The Oreo cookie analogy or silver dollar analogy really is helpful. I had a patient ask me if it was single stuff or double stuff. I said, I said it's like an Oreo cookie without any stuff in it, and that's about the, the width, the, the thickness of this thing. Um, P&E or staged? Now, P&E is a... How many of you do P&E in, in your office. Okay. And does anybody do, somebody asked yesterday if you do P&E in the operating room. I'm not sure why you would do that, but okay. Yeah, sometimes it, outside of the U.S. I've seen that, but it, okay, maybe that was but the that's reason otherwise, for the question. Yeah, in, the, in the U.S. typically we'll do it How in many the people do staged? How many people do a little bit of each? Yeah. So I, I was not a big P&E um, supporter at the very beginning because what they told to be totally honest because they said okay do peony and if it doesn't work do staged and i'm like this is kind of a racket you know <laughs> but but it really comes down to now i do peony and most of the time they do great with that i mean and and there are some things to talk about as far as you know keeping track of how well they do but um 
you know, very few people need to go on to a stage, but if it's not, doesn't show that they've got efficacy, then taking them, you can get a little more precise placement with the stage. But all you need to do is prove that you get at least 50% improvement, and then you can go to the OR just once, and that's kind of nice. A lot of it comes down to the flow in your clinic. I mean, if you're using the urodynamics room to do your PE, and ties up the aerodynamics room and ties up your staff. So some of it has to be how things are set up for you. Um, but if it is, you know, easy to do, I think it's a nice tool to have. Um, also, as I mentioned before, the staff engagement and the empowerment of the staff to be part of the solution for your patients is really valuable. I think patients um, make a nice relationship with your staff, and the staff really appreciates being able to make a difference for their patients. Um, and then, you know, the programming, the interrogation, and all of that, the, the representatives from the company are very, you know, enthusiastic about helping us, and so it doesn't have to tie up your staff in that regard. So lean on your reps. Um, now, the voiding diary, I think this is really important so that you can objectively show in the record that you've made a difference. So have them do a three-day voiding diary or even if it's a one-day voiding diary, but have them show something prior to treatment, scan it into your record so that you can compare to it later on, and then re, you know, redo it after they've got their test lead in. But are we doing our best? So how do we do optimal lead placement? So all of us have been involved in doing sacral neuromodulation since we used to do the cut down. Didn't it? Has anybody seen the cut down where we would make an incision, go all the way down to the sacrum, and then place the wire? And so little by little, we've gotten to percutaneous. And as we've started to know what the landmarks are, the cutaneous landmarks and the fluoroscopic landmarks, which we're going to talk about here, um, we can optimize lead placement and actually achieve you know, stimulation in all four electrodes under two milliamps it should be, um, you know, and, and get success. And I, I remember we used to be happy to leave the operating room with one electrode at seven, and now we're like, we're not leaving until they're all under two, and most of the time they're under one, all four of them. So um, basically the goal, as you know, is the cephalad most, uh, superior most medial aspect of S3, because that's where the nerve exits. Let's see if I can point it out here. Oh, there's no pointer. Is that a pointer? Nope, that's not a pointer. Okay, well, anyway, oh, here's the pointer. All right, so S3, one, two, three, and it comes out, and, and you know, the nerve comes out and it flares down and out. And so now we've also learned that we use a curved stylet, that the leads come already, you know, um, um, with the curved stylet in there, so it, it courses the nerve, we say it surfs the nerve, right? So the closer you can get your lead to follow the path of the nerve, the less battery juice you need. And so now the battery life, I quote to the patients, is 10 to 15 years for the non-rechargeable batteries. That's fantastic. You know darn well by the time they have a battery change, if, it, if something else doesn't happen to the lead or something in the meantime, it, the batteries are gonna be probably these little dots by the time, by the time we change. So let's talk a little bit about Oops. So case 3A, okay, 40-year-old female, initial good response with sacred neuromodulation, and somehow she comes in and says, I don't think it's working that well anymore. So one, one thing just about record-keeping, I always try to ask patients, you know, how many pads do you wear? How many times do you get up in the middle of the night? How, how you, know, you can't really quantify the urgency, but you can record some things that Mrs. Smith is living today because in a year when she comes back and she said, you know, this thing isn't working anymore, and I say, how many pads are you wearing? And she says, well, two liners, and I get up once at night, and, you know, 
And I say, well, a year ago when you came in, you were wearing three heavy pads and you were getting up three times at night. And she'll say, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. So there's really everyday practical things. If you could just note it, jot it down, it's really helpful because sometimes they forget where they came from, right? But the objective thing is really important also for insurance purposes. So just, you know, prove that actually her symptoms are declining or, you know, getting worse again. Oh, these are the font changed on us a little bit, but um, so first steps you want to ask the symptoms. Make sure it's not stress incontinence or a UTI. Make sure that the device is on. I mean, we used to just have patients come in as a knee-jerk response, and a lot of patients would come in and they'd gone to the bank or something and walk through those little things, and it turned it off somehow. You know, I think we've got a lot of waves and electro whatever that are in our world, and perhaps that's what turned it off. But so before you save them a trip in if it's not on. Um, make sure that the sensation is exactly what you want it to be. Sometimes the leads can migrate. So if the lead migrates because somebody lost a lot of weight or they slipped on the ice and fell, you know, I think those, are, it's important. Are you feeling the tapping, buzzing sensation in the vaginal rectal area, the penoscrotal rectal area? We call it the bicycle seat area. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm feeling it there. If they're feeling it in their buttock or down their leg, it's not in the right place, right? So you want to reprogram and, and try to see if any of those four electrodes are still in the right place because, again, the lead itself can migrate. Um, check and see if the battery is still you know, got juice in it. And then you want to check impedances. Now, what are impedances? We're looking at if the circuit is connected, right? So if they've got impedances, high impedances, over 4,000 ohms in any, any electrode, that means the circuit is broken. The electrodes are not flowing through the circuit. And so if, it's, if the impedances are high, then, you know, and, and if it's only in one lead, for or one electrode, for instance, you can use the good ones. You don't have to change the whole lead out because one or two electrodes um, uh, have elevated impedances. Okay, so, you know, considerations are the impedances, the lead migration, or if the lead fractures because somebody's had a fall. Um, and then other things, like they can develop stress incontinence, or they can have new medications, or, you know, diabetes, or something, new, new Lasix, or something that really changes their symptoms. So really delve into that if things have changed suddenly. All right, this is the old controller. It was just nice historically to see what we came from. And now we've got a smartphone, so it's pretty discreet. And people can carry that around without people knowing that they're actually controlling their bladder with what looks like their phone. Okay, um, you know, programming. This is something that the, the representatives can help you with also. But if they're having pain or they're having too intense of a sensation, you can turn things down or you can increase the pulse width that widens the area that it stimulates or you can decrease the pulse width and it kind of focuses it a little bit more. So these are things that are changeable, okay? So it's not just the intensity of the, of the uh, stimulation. So just know that that exists and you can ask about it. Do we add a medication? You can always try re-adding a beta-3 agonist and see if that helps. That's certainly a reasonable option. Some people get on a botulinum toxin A. I wouldn't do that right away without checking all these other things that might be fixable without adding another therapy. But, you know, the other thing is to get an x-ray, right? Take a look and see what the leads look like. Now, I'm going to tell a message that I have in here, but don't judge what we know now. Don't judge what we did last week or last year or, you know, five years ago, certainly, 10 years ago, certainly, by what we know now. We've just gotten better at it as a group. We've got landmarks that we know that we can use, um, fluoroscopic landmarks, et cetera. So don't have somebody come in and go, 
you know, what was the, what were they thinking? You know, because I'm going to show you some of my own. I mean, some of my patients, you can see the whole history of uh, sacral neuromodulation in one patient because I was, as we learned, we were getting better and better. Um, other approaches you can certainly think about doing. So here is a patient. Now, you want it to be as, first of all, the landmark is this is the medial aspect of the sacrum or the foramina. And here, um, as the SI, if you see this curve come in, it's going to be the next foramen down. So the, the level is right on this patient, but she just wasn't having as good um, uh, result as, as I thought she could. And it looks pretty good, right? And so also remember that you want to go on clinical symptoms, not the x-ray. Like the x-ray can look not so great, but they're doing great. That's fine, especially when you're coming out of the OR. You don't have to have a perfect x-ray. You have to have as good as you can clinical response, motor response, right? But in this gal, well, you know, could I go a little more medial? Could I curve it down a little bit more or even go a little higher in the foramen? As it turns out, we could. So we revised her, and I'm going to put this side by side. This is the revision. But you can see, especially on the AP, this was the original. This one's just a little bit more medial. Just a little bit, and millimeters make a difference. So, like, you just have to put the whole thing together. Like, I didn't want to be, you know, running to the OR, but on the other hand, she did great after we revised it. Um, and here's, you can see, just a, it's about the same level. I actually feel like I could go a little bit higher than that, but she got a great response with this curvature down. So, that's, you know, just to show you the same patient, we just revised the lead, and she had a better clinical response. Okay, 3B, 53-year-old female. She did great with PNE, but not so great with the permanent lead. So how many have you? How many of you have had that experience where they do great in the test stimulation, and then you put in the permanent, and they're like, this thing doesn't work, right? Ugh. Right. Um, same kind of situation. A patient who had an, a, a sacral nerve stimulator placed in 2012. She did. She had mono, mono, sorry, modest efficacy with an anti-muscarinic. She said it was never really that perfect. No sensation. You check the IPG has zero, so it's dead. Okay. So when you go in there, should you just change the IPG? You might want to take an X-ray and see what the position of the lead is, because we're better at it now than we were in 2012. It's just a fact. So you probably wouldn't want to change the whole thing out, in my opinion. What would you guys say? I said, you know, the other thing that comes up nowadays is the leads are MRI compatible. And, and if the opportunity was there or they mentioned it or you even mentioned it, uh, again, I would say that there's an opportunity to change the lead and the generator at the same time. No, that's a really good point. And certainly I think that lowers our threshold, um, especially for a lot of patients that it's, oh, I would like to get an MRI for X, Y, and Z, yeah. my back pain or whatever it is. So that's a super important point. Now, having said that, it's obviously not necessary for you to change the lead in somebody who's doing well and who doesn't that's need right. an MRI to an MRI compatible. I have heard of people doing that, and I don't mm -hmm. think that that's a great thing to do because you've got something that's working, number one. Number two, it's an operation they don't need. I mean, right. you know, it well, doesn't the, matter. I mean, the biggest yeah. challenge is there's data good studies that have shown that leads that are not MRI compatible do not have an issue in an MRI machine. Mm -hmm. Came out from Cleveland right. Clinic. Um, the Where's challenge that? Where, sometimes... Where's that? Where? That? I'm just joking. Clinic. Clinic. I was just heard joking. Of it. it's, it's a place where they apparently have snow. I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, Bad sports teams. But, um, <laughs> but the problem, the challenge is sometimes getting the MRI folks to do the MRI in those patients. And like the last time I had that issue, I had a patient who did not want to have her stimulator removed. She needed an MRI for her knee. And she lived in Ventura, which if you know Los Angeles, it's like a 90 minute drive. There's no reason to come down to SC for uh, 
an MRI, but I convinced my folks at SC, I had to order a knee MRI. I'm like, okay, well, just do whatever you would normally do for a knee MRI. I don't know how to order it. But I ordered the knee MRI so she could get the MRI at USC and her stimulator did fine. Yeah. But I think you have to give everyone appropriate warnings about the potential for, I mean, what the biggest risk is, is that the lead heats up and can cause nerve damage and, and chronic pain. But I just don't know if any it's situation usually the, that, the radiologist who you have to have a chat with, and so they'll they'll do the MRI with no sedation. I mean, some folks need sedation to go into the MR scanner, but if they don't need sedation, they could be awake. And if they feel any discomfort or heat, this is off label what we're telling you right now, actually. Exactly. But that that's the report that came out of Cleveland Clinic, and we and and we have all done at least one MRI with a patient who had a sacred neuromodulator. And, and I promise you a lot of your patients have had MRIs because they forgot to tell anyone and they just went, yeah. and they went in the machine. <laughs> it happens all the time. Now, by the way, that's another thing is counseling your patients just as while well, I'm thinking about it is we'll tell our patients, you know, the, the first thing they ask you is, can I go through the airport? Don't they ask you that pretty commonly? And you say, well, you know, just remember to turn it off before you go through and then turn it back on when you get to the other side. But I also realized, you also have to tell them, if you get to the other side and realize you didn't turn it off, don't panic. Because this is stuff that we tell our patients because that's what we were taught to tell our patients. That's what the FDA sort of approval says. But we've never, I've never had anybody have you know, their programs erased or anything, and that's the reason for it. Uh, that's the reason why they ask us to turn it off. But, so I, I reassure them, don't panic. It doesn't, it's not, not a disaster. If you get to the other side, you're not going to hurt you know, in terms, You asked about scripting. That was actually one of the things that I always do is I say, listen, you're going to set off the alarm at TSA. It's no big deal. They get biological uh, uh, implants all the time with, with knees and hips. It'll, it might, get, might spend an extra five minutes at TSA. That's it. Not a big deal. That's good. I think it's important, but it's also important so that they don't call you and say, I just went through the airport and I forgot to turn it off because they think that they have to. So let them know that that's not a problem. So here's, we all get this too. Uh, they had a neurostimulator placed in an outside facility and it never worked, right? So what are the next steps? You want to see where it is. Now, sometimes we get this, oh, that got shifted up there a little bit, but you know, sometimes we have, this is clearly not right, but look at, you can tell that this is an old one. How? So it was done before we have our new techniques now. How can you tell it's an old one? You can tell because we went through this period of time where we had a, a long, one long electrode, um, thinking that we'd hit the nerve better. Now it's gone back. It's, you know, the thing isn't as flexible, et cetera, et cetera. So we're back to the you know, all equal. But this one, I can't even see it. But you know, sometimes you get these x-rays. And again, I, I, I urge you not to be too critical of our colleagues or each other because we just didn't know as much then as we know now. Uh, and again, I'll show you. Um, I'll show you one of my own. So working well, but annoying left uh, lower extremity sensation. Have you ever had that sort of thing happen when you get, you know, stimulation where you don't want it? And what do you? What are your thoughts, Sandy? So if if something kind of comes up new, you know, a lot of times we'll we'll see that maybe the lead moved a little bit. So many times in, in simple things, we can just program around it. If we can't easily program around it, we'll change the pulse width. So the pulse width is kind of narrowing or changing or widening the field. And many times that's going to remedy. So if they said, this is great, my bladder's fine, but I'm getting something sometimes shooting down my leg or my, my toes goes a little numb or, or things like that, we start to think that maybe it's stimulating a few nerves that we don't want it to stimulate, and that's where we change the pulse width. Right. Great. And, and I want to add one thing. For, for those of you that don't, who here does their own programming? And who here, remember, you know, there, there's some times where the programming, it can be very challenging and don't feel obliged. You're not getting paid a heck of a lot to do your programming. You may have a nurse or a PA that's doing it, but if you don't, you know, you, the rep will come and help you out with this. And if, if the rep, 
And the reps will do that because they want implants to be placed. And if they're not going to come in, then you find another company where the rep will come in. Because the rep will always come in. And they know what to do with these. And they understand changing the pulse width and whatever it may be. So mm -hmm. it's very adequate and appropriate to be leaning on your rep as needed. What if you get? Uh, what if you have a patient who's got like a lot of toe stimulation or a lot of foot sensation? I mean, what you need to think about. I mean, if the if the lead is curving up or if the lead's yeah. catching some of the of the fibers from S two, they can get some leg stimulation also. So I mean, just kind of think about that. We we know neuroanatomy. We don't have to know real intricate neuroanatomy, but you just know what we're trying to aim for. And so think about that. Those, if you can't program around it, that's worth a revision, I think. Right. Remember, you have four leads and multiple ways to, to, to program around those various leads. So mm -hmm. just because you're getting it on one program, you certainly often can program that, that they, the, the, the simulation you want to avoid out. I, mean, I was just going to say that when we hear that, you know, I had it implanted and this thing never worked. I mean, that, that's kind of fingernails on a chalkboard for us. I mean, the fact that they even went to an implant, it should never have happened if it, quote unquote, never worked. So the short answer is probably. Yeah, but do you believe worked, that? Right. I mean, that's the thing. I, I it don't probably worked, but maybe not it's to like their the level of satisfaction. It's like the patient I had a sling, but I never leaked when I coughed or sneezed. I mean, sometimes these things happen, but sometimes I think also the patients don't remember what they had. Yeah, right. well, I think that right. that's, you know, therein lies how important it can be to say you, you used to wear four heavy pads a day, now you're right. wearing two liners. Those little simple things that can help us remember where we came from. But So you can see here, this bilateral leads, one's got a better placement than the other, although I think this one might be, this one looks good from a lateral to medial, medial to lateral, but it looks a little low. I'm not sure it might be this one here. But anyway, it uh, so just showing you different things, you know, they it's really going to come down to the clinical response on these patients. And I'm going to show you again this I emphasize to the residents and fellows all the time, like, don't judge me. Because sometimes I get my own patients come in, I'm like, ooh, that's a little embarrassing. But, you know, hey, uh, if, if I put them in like this uh, now, that would be bad. This is she, a patient. She was so embarrassed by all of her bad leads in Seattle, she moved to Houston, apparently. <laughs> Now, this is a gal who came to me at age 19, and this was in 99, right after I got out of fellowship, and she's the one who I can tell you. So now you're taking pictures of it. Now you're really going to get me. <laughs> Don't send them to all over the place. Don't put my name on it. No, it's, I'm just joking. I show this on purpose because it is a little pride, eating your pride or swallowing your pride. But the fact is, you can see, this is a history of neuromodulation. I did hers open first, and then she got pregnant four times, and over the course of time, she was in retention. She was in, she was in retention, strangely, idiopathic retention. She, she voids now, and she actually became a urology nurse. Um, but you can see kind of the history of things. We got better and better at it. These are really, I'm going to show you, these are really deep. So I mean, there's a question really coming in on the chat, not to interrupt, but on bilateral. Is there a role? I mean, there's some data years ago on retention patients. So again, technically off-label. Um, yeah. But that said, what do you guys think? I mean, because because we don't have to talk about on-label stuff here. Yeah. I, I, I don't do bilateral. It is off-label. I guess there's no reason not to do You know, we do PNEs bilaterally, and we check we don't stimulate them both at the same time. The retention is more stubborn than overactive bladder, and it takes... I usually take longer on the trial, and I really push it to the max. Um, so what's the but, longest you'll go on a retention trial? Well, I'll go two to three weeks. But I had, okay, so I'll tell you, I had a gal, the, the, the risk is infection, right? So I had a gal who we actually did a stage one. She actually went to staged. And then in between, she decided somehow, and I didn't, maybe I wasn't listening, right, but she decided to have knee surgery between stage one and stage two. <laughs> 
<laughs> then, of course, her knee, something happened, and she ended up in rehab. And so, like, five weeks later, I'm like, you have to come in. You have to come in. I gotta. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to do it right now. You know, I, I said, you have to come in. It's five weeks, and, you know, you're, two weeks is the max, right, by FDA. So, um, and she did fine, but I'll tell you, that was a little stressful for me. So, what yeah. about you guys? Yeah, we had one that somehow got lost to follow up, and about two months later came back. When do you take this thing out? Or do you just leave it? <laughs> No, my, my, mine is I do two, but every now and then, and usually if I go longer than two, it's it's in the pre-op and we're talking to the patient, and it's clear to me the patient's had some response, maybe not enough of a response to justify putting it in, but it's also clear that there are some issues and, and misunderstandings in terms of their um, stimulation parameters, and it wasn't optimized, or they had turned it off mistakenly, or maybe we found what appeared to be a really good program two days before we were going to have to make a decision. And and it's kind of a pain for those of you that have busy schedules, and you're scheduling your, your OR to a month or two down the road to add somebody on. But that's the time in my mind where I'm more likely to go to an extra week to see how they do. Yeah. So here it is. I mean, I'm just... Bearing my soul here, you can see, you know, this is, this is, you know, evol evolution or, you know, improvement, hopefully. Um, but you can, I hope you can tell which ones are the, the more recent ones, <laughs> uh, you know, up here. So, better ones. And she ended up, it looks like bilateral, but not. So, you can see a couple of these. This one is a ghost lead. This one's a ghost lead. So, I tried to take them out when she got pregnant. She needed an MRI for some reason. We tried to take, we we're going to talk about taking the leads out because, you know, a ghost lead is when you take it out, you know, I, I don't know if any of you have had that experience where you pull, 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 and all of a sudden it gives and you've got your casing in there and you've got your wires hanging out, right? So that's a ghost lead. There are tricks on how to get leads out. Not, not these old ones that are way too deep, but at that time we thought that was okay, you know, so it was just trying to get the right um, responses, but now we can do it with a lot more precision. Um, now, I think we'll talk about lead removal as, as a matter of fact. Dr. Vasavita, do you want to talk about it? Or, I mean, we've got some yeah. tricks, but why don't you go ahead and I'll trade you. Yeah. You can talk about lead removal. Has anybody had to take out a lead? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Oh, yeah. Okay, so there are tricks. Has anyone broken a lead? Right? We all have, unfortunately. And this is what we're trying to avoid. It. And, and this is that patient who's like, listen, I had a lady the other day who um, was getting an MRI that afternoon. And she wanted me to take her lead out. And she, uh, she poor lady, had, had cancer and chemotherapy. And so she's been through a lot. She's like, you're taking it out in the office. I won't do it in the operating room. Just, I don't need that. I can handle it. So I'm doing it in the office, inadequate you know, equipment and everything else. But that said, you know, she's like, not to add more pressure, but I'm having my MRI this afternoon. <laughs> so um, no problem. We'll do it. And, and so anyway, I think the, the, the party line is you, know, you should make every effort to get the lead out in its entirety. I think trying to do it from the side incision is not advisable. This is for a chronically placed lead. It's been in for uh, several months to years. Uh, would you guys agree? So this is using the side or the, the generator site incision. So most of us would say make a small cut down uh, where the lead actually goes into the sacrum. So when I so say, so how do you how do you um, identify that? What are your tricks to identify, identify. where? I'm like where do you cut? Do you cut just on the dot, or you know, what if you had like three dots there? <laughs> because yeah, it's so. Uh, you know, we'll already have opened up where the generator is, so I'll usually pull and tug, and you'll see a bit of a dimple there where it's going in. And so, but to your point, we've had patients who, you know, I've been in practice for almost 20 years, so, so with that 
they've had this tic-tac-toe board of different incisions if they've had revisions or someone else placed it, and now you don't know where everything is. So, you know, site laterality, I think it just reminds me to always mention that. You might think everything's fine. Oh, I can see it there. I had a lady who, who said her device wasn't working, and as it turned out, uh, she was placing her uh, programmer over the wrong site where she had an old generator that actually oh, no. that wasn't there. So her generator was on the other side, and our site was marked wrong. I had to call radiology in because we were removing everything, and um, again, that's a, a surgical site, uh, wrong site surgery if you even inject lidocaine on the wrong side, technically. So that said, just a, a side note on that. I, I think, sorry, one, one other yeah. thing is, like, don't rip yourself off on the in, incision. You know, you do the little dimple thing. I, I used to try to make just a puncture yeah. and then dig around with a, with a right ankle clamp. Yeah. You're going to be there forever, and especially if you've got a lot of tissue between the skin and the sacrum. Mm -hmm. So make an incision big enough for you to get in there. It's fine. You know, you want to get right. the whole thing out, and you'll, you'll compromise your ability to do that if you try to do it through this teeny little thing. Totally agree. So I think a centimeter and a half to two, two centimeter incision probably to do that. Give yourself some space. Have some retraction to get down to where it's going in. We'll kind of use some uh, spot cautery around it. Um, and again, the, the rationale is oftentimes these patients want to have MRIs or you're just trying to avoid the lead fragment or fracture in the first place. So one of the things we've done is um, we've actually taken, especially in revisions, there's a straight stylet that's just there. It's got a little green uh, top to it. So we'll oftentimes use the straight stylet and just put that down the lead itself. And what it does is it kind of stiffens up the whole lead so the likelihood of us being able to take it out intact is, is almost 100%. So that's worked for me and in my practice. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we don't want you to use the chronic leads, uh, chronic generator site off to the side to pull. I think the angle is too, too acute and the likelihood of a lead fracture somewhere is probably pretty high. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so we'll make the small incision as we alluded to, get down, dissect down, and then once I do it, I don't like to pull on the lead because it starts to accordion a bit. Then I take the straight stylet, put that down. So I'm just going to show you a little video clip of that. So that's just the straight stylet going right down. And it'll almost always go all the way down. And then oftentimes I'll just kind of hold that while we pull with the other set of hands in this case uh, directly and straight up. And as we're pulling straight up, uh, it almost always comes out intact. And that's worked for me. KK, you do a little different technique yeah, at times. Yeah, a couple things. First, you want to dissect down as far as you can. If you can get all the way down to like the first tine, you know, mm -hmm. you've got something to grab. And, you know, the lead is going to fracture in a position that's higher than that. So if you can get to the first tine, you've got, you know, you, you can grab something onto that and that's you. helpful. There, I was just whispering here with uh, Dr. Ginsburg about whether or not I could talk about an off-label thing, but I'm, I'm going to. Just, it's off-label. There is a, there's a, cardiac lead removal device that's basically a little coil and you can thread it all the way down and then you can push you push the coils down and it expands the the um wire basically because it's coils and it squishes them so it expands the width of it and so it gives you a little traction on the lead from the inside and then that helps you pull it so you can ask is, is there much of a cost for that thing uh, yeah i think i'm sure there's a cost to I these mean, are, but yeah. i don't know i don't know what yeah. it is and it's off label and only when you've had something that you think is going to be really stuck in there or it's mm -hmm. been there for a few years or you know one of those deep ones that, these are ghost leads that i showed you but if they're not ghost leads and you, you know, they're deep, you can try something like that. Uh, so. I'm very old school. I just get a snap, but I just do a twirl. Yeah, I use A twirl and a pull and a twirl and a pull. So it's kind of the idea of just gentle pressure, continuing, 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 to use feel a pop. 
I don't know if any of these well, are better You know, but if you other. pull and you feel like it's stretching, right. back yeah. off. Because if, right. if, you're, right. if you do that, it, you know, the next thing is going to, like, really pop and you'll be looking at these right. wires. And so, you know, and then in theory, the, the, the ghost lead, in theory, is not MRI compatible, in, in theory, right? So exactly. you just want to, just for your own sense of going to sleep at night, you want to take, take the whole thing out. <laughs> so to make sure, you know, if you're doing just a lead and lead and generator removal, I guess, you know, consent that patient to the possibility of a lead fracture, potential ramifications of that, and then um, you know, disclose that to them after surgery and, and perhaps dictate that in your operative report that a lead fracture was, a fragment was there. Um, you know, you don't want them to go somewhere else, have an x-ray, and someone tell them, like, oh, you know, you have this piece sitting in there. I mean, they don't want to hear that for the first time from, from another provider. Um, so kind of last thing on take-homes, I'll, I'll just complete it for KK, but, you know, engaging your staff. I think all of us would agree the more your staff knows about this, because you don't want someone calling into the office and they're like, oh, no, we don't do that, or Botox, no, that's in plastic surgery. We don't really do that here. So these are conversation pieces you should have. Um, you know, batching, I think, is always helpful because it just if you're learning or you're getting new into something, the more you can kind of get a little bit of a cadence and flow to your practice, you know, it helps you because you'll get better with the second and then the third and then the fourth, and it just successfully continues to increase. Um, your PTNS, uh, you know, is, is another option, thinking about it. Uh, it takes up a room space but not staff because usually, at least our cases, Nurse does that. I don't do PTNS. The nurse does it. She places it in, and then usually she should go to do another thing in her list of things to do instead of like go get a cup of coffee. But I guess she could <laughs> if she wants to. Um, if a PNE ties things up, you can do staged in the operating room. I think. What would you guys say your successes with PNEs versus staged? You I know, mean, now that I've bought into it, I finally gave in and I did it, and I find it really simple. It's quite simple. It's very fast. Um, and I'm going to say that out of all the PNEs, probably 90% of them do fine, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Um, and then the other 10% don't, and then you take them to the OR unless they say no, no thanks. But some of them, after doing a PNE, the ones that are tougher sometimes, you know, um, don't want to go to even to the operating room to get their staged implant because they feel like they've had this bad experience, <laughs> you know, yeah. people. You got to be careful. And so, yeah. But generally, generally not the case. The people who I take for staged are patients who either tell you, you know, I can't, you, you can't do that to me in the office or pain patients, patients who have a pain component. Yeah. I just go straight to the OR for a staged because they're just going to be uncomfortable and, and that makes everybody uncomfortable. So just do the stage. But peonies has been remarkably, I mean, I'm eating my words because I pushed back on that. I'm just being honest. But Well, I think you were probably like me because the old technology and the peonies were also ones that moved a lot. Yeah. And now that the last, you know, this is right around early pandemic, that they came out with a new peony lead, as Medtronic did, um, and before Exonix launched, I mean, that made a big difference yeah. that it doesn't move. Otherwise, yeah. the other one, I think, sometimes moved by the time when, they were in their parking garage. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, leaning on your industry reps. They do this all day, every day, whereas you're doing other procedures. And so they know this extremely well. So, you know, if you have an ego, put it at the side. <laughs> this is a time when you listen to your industry reps. They also have a different vantage point on the table. Usually they're at the foot of the bed. And they can see, are you, you know, placing your needle to medial lateral, lateral medial, you know, when, when you're trying to do that. So just, again, listen to them. And, and well, keep, uh, speaking of that, I mean, I always emphasize to the fellows when we're doing this, I, mean, I, I lean over, and that's how I, that's where I stand. Yeah, like I, I am, lean too. I am leaning over the patient so I can be essentially like, 
just distal over their butt so I can see because mm -hmm. you get completely off kilter in terms of medial lateralness and you think that you're going at that right angle with your needle and you're way off. Right. So a lot of it's just how you stand and, and I think the natural tendency is not to stand there. I always say to the residents and fellows, use the eyes at the feet. Use your eyes at the feet, who's the representative, right? And they'll say, move the hub away, move the hub towards yep, you, move the hub exactly. away. And so they really can help us out a lot. I mean, the other thing is I have a drape that I use. It's a neurosurgery drape. You guys use It's a clear drape, except for the patch in the middle, that's Ioban. Mm -hmm. And it sticks. And so it's really nice because nobody has to go crawling underneath the drape and looking at someone's foot. Um, you know, they can just... They can see it right through, but also you've got your IOBAN built in, and I like to have IOBAN when we're putting a, a an implant in. But so that's Same. nice. I can share that all with you. But it's been a real, and it has a little pocket, so if you irrigate or whatever. But um, Man, you yeah. just spend the money left and right. Neurosurgery drapes, cardiac <laughs> tunneling tools. Things are good in Texas, right? <laughs> what what um, antibiotics do you guys use uh, perioperatively? Ansef. I use ANSEF, and I, and I do send them home after the permanent implant with, like, three days of Bactrim because yeah, it covers MRSA. Yeah. Yeah, we use the same Ioban drape. We've been using the chloroprep. So an alcohol-based prep, I think, does make a difference. Um, we kind of call it our no-touch technique in the sense of just we change gloves, especially when the generator is going in. So only clean gloves are handling the generator, you know, like someone's hands not resting on the butt and then taking the generator and putting it in. Yeah. We've been using this uh, irrigation solution called Vosh. Oh, um, it, it's like a chlorhexidine-based wash. It's supposed to be extremely safe. There's, there's folklore that one of the reps actually drank it and says he has no problem. Although I don't know if I believe that. Uh, because once you put it in the incision and you, if you use like a, a sponge to dab it, it, it actually looks, it turns green. So I, I, don't I don't know about the rep I don't know doing about that. drinking it. Gosh. <laughs> but, yes. but that's that. It's just an irrigant. Because uh, we used to use bacitracin irrigation. And, and I assume you guys don't have it. We, we don't have it available anymore. So. Oh, I think there's a shortage of that. Right. right? Isn't it one, yeah. one of the other shortages? So. Yeah. And, and lastly, you know, I think we do all admit that we all get better with time. And as KK alluded to, you know, old leads we placed. And then you see them years later. And sometimes it's a little humbling of an experience because you look at it and you're like oh my god like that's that's terrible but but practice it. too though it's really a fun procedure honestly i really enjoy doing it but practice you get better and when you get a good result it's really satisfying so all right. so should we keep moving on to the next case yep. so a 46 year old woman with ms and overactive bladder she's failed first and second line therapies she's had urodynamics and shows detrusor overactivity so, David, what's kind of your minimal evaluation? And, and she already had your dynamics. Did you really need it, or did you always do that in these so, cases? So, at least per the neurogenic learning practice function guidelines from the AUA, um, a patient with any type of neurogenic bladder dysfunction who is voiding on his or her own and has a low PVR, you would only do your dynamics to help you identify how you want to treat. You do not need your dynamics as part of the risk stratification protocol. So this was a patient that got urodynamics. You saw a DO, you know what she has, um, but she doesn't have to have urodynamics. So it kind of depends on what's going on because I would say, you know, the MS patient that comes in and has just urge incontinence, has no elevated residual, is, is unfortunately, it's in my practice, more the exception rather than the rule when they have a solitary component like that. And sometimes, you, you know, you just wonder if their MS isn't that bad. It's just patient just has regular old OAB and happens to have a diagnosis of MS as well. So I think it depends on, on what they have. I mean, it's much more challenging when they have these symptoms and elevated PVR, and they might have obstructive voiding and incomplete emptying, intermittent stream. That's a whole different patient. Yeah. 
So you would lean a lot on your post-void residual? Is that a fair PBR statement? And, and their symptoms. I mean, again, if there's right. no obstructive voiding, and right. this, no obstructive you know, voiding. male or female, just, just urge, urge incontinence frequency, voiding fine, you know, and uh, no stress incontinence, oh. I'm not inclined to get urodynamics on this patient because I don't think, you know, again, I, I'm going to do urodynamics on a neurogenic patient because it's indicated for a stratification, not for her, or will it change what I do? No. That's the and it thing. is not going to change what you're going to do on this patient. You know, this is a little bit of a um, tangent, but I mean, we're really, really questioning urodynamics a lot more these days, right? I mean, like, is it going to change what your road is? Is it going to change how you counsel a patient? Is it going to ask a question that's going to help you decide what to do for the patient? And if not, are we overutilizing? No, an no the answer test? is yes. Because the debate I just had was, should you do urodynamics <laughs> in a male mean? patient with post-prostatectomy incontinence? And of course, I never do that. And I was arguing for urodynamics. So, <laughs> so I mean, we talked to the short, shorthand there. About the resources that we have and what I won, as far as you I'm won? concerned. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> arguing against yourself. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. That's great. Well, I guess this question is for me, but I'll, I'll, I'll answer it. You know, are any of the third line options, you know, not an option. You know, so, so in the era before recent times when we had MRI-compatible or non-compatible leads, that definitely was the case, right? Because they, these patients, especially MS, needed routine follow-ups with MRIs. My neurologist is going to hate me because I just put this device in, and now that, that limits their ability to do MRIs. Uh, remember, they could always do brain MRIs, but sometimes when they're thinking about some of the other newer MS drugs, they needed to prove or disprove um, you know, plaques or some level of progression, and that's where they rely so much on the MRIs. Now, uh, with the systems currently available, they're all at least MRI conditional, so there should be no problem in doing that. And just needing to educate that patient how to do the, you know, put the you know, device into MRI mode to safely have the MRI, put it back on so that they can get back onto their therapy. So, so I think sacral neuromodulation is a great option in, for example, the MS, MS patient mm -hmm. that has these symptoms, and especially with the one that may not be emptying well. Right. And when I'm kind of seeing maybe going down that road, I will start removing anything that has any, any, anything that related to neurogenic in any of my documentation and my coding. I think but, that's a great point. But... You know, it depends on how sophisticated the insurance, the payer right. is. Right. I don't, I sometimes, they'll, I'll get roadblocked by them saying this is not indicated for neurogenic I mean, lower we'll tract dysfunction. Do you guys, you guys see yeah, that? Yeah, no, I always code it urgency frequency, you know, urgency incontinence. Don't, don't say neurogenic bladder when you submit it to insurance. Right, because you're treating this patient like someone who did not have any neurogenic issues. Because some of the insurance companies, probably many of them, have flags because technically we don't really talk about things like neuromodulation in the setting of neurogenic bladder problems. So that's where they're both saying, and I would completely agree, not to list neurogenic bladder or, or anything like that, or MS probably even in that case, uh, although right. I'm sure they could see I it. I haven't in, found in a problem record. if you say MS, but as long as the, you know, it's approved for frequency and urgency, right? Or an urgency incontinence. Yeah, I so just use those codes, but I have definitely been blocked on some patients, both Parkinson's and, I mean, I have so many that I, you know, every now and then I, but we try to, um, just remove all that wording in notes. So David, let's say she came in and she, never mind the urodynamics, she had 150 residual. Uh, she's got urge incontinence, refractory to medications as we showed. What, what, what would your conversation be like? I guess I'm gonna ask you based on you know, history with a prior trial that you were 
one of the leads for, and, and where would you, where would that come into play, or well, how would you counsel yeah, well, her? I mean, they, she, you got three options, right? I mean, one would be just could be neuromodulation off label, and, mm-hmm. and that might. But then, okay. if you have a botulinum toxin patient uh, as an option, you know, this is FDA approved for two things: botulinum toxin, neurogenic detrusor overactivity at 200 units. It's a urodynamic indication per the FDA, yeah. and essentially refractory symptomatic overactive bladder with a 100-unit indication. So this is, like for MES, ME, any MS patient that doesn't want to catheterize or is not catheterizing baseline, we're not going to go, 200, we're going to go with 100. But if, I think that her, you know, if she has a really bad bladder, you know, whatever her, and I think that we really going to, or we're not going to do, we do 100 and she doesn't do great, and she increases the PVR, I'm like, I can get you way better, but you're going to have to catheterize. And that's a whole different conversation that, you know, again, I will probably have started that conversation several visits prior, and, you know, my hope is, it's kind of like, it's like, you know, that gateway drug. I just need to get to start catheterizing once a day. Because once you start catheterizing once a day, you realize, oh, this is no big deal. And then I can say, ooh, if I give you 200 units and you catheterize more frequently, I can get you... Dry or almost dry, but you got to catheterize more often. Why have I already ca- you already catheterized once? It's no big deal. You've already broken the barrier. And you know, I think the MS patients, part of it is also psychological because they think, oh, it's a sign that my MS is progressing. I make a big deal about this. Nothing to do with your MS. This is how your bladder's been for a long time. It's not your bl- your MS is not making your bladder worse. We're just going to make your bladder better with a catheterization. But that, for some patients, it's not a big deal. But for some, it's a really tough sale. Or for some, you know, they they may walk in your office fine, but their hand function is op- impacted so much that they ca- actually can't do. They have a tough job doing the catheterization. You know, some um, just a couple of thoughts as you were talking. Some MS patients are really very much like an idiopath, right? I mean that they are they are. They have the label of MS, but their bladder, the, everything about them is like an idiopathic. I keep getting caught on this, excuse me. Um, and I have a question about, you know, we, we don't put neurogenic, and if you, if that's what, we're pretty good on time, I think. Um, we don't put neurogenic, but really neurogenic you know, bladder is not You know, really a, fast as needed. <laughs> it, neurogenic bladder is, I mean, the indications, as I said, for, for neuromodulation, the, the approved indications are urgency, frequency, urgency incontinence, right? And in non-obstructed urinary retention and fecal incontinence. Um, is neurogenic bladder a contraindication? Because they have all of those things, and I don't think it's a contraindication. I mean, it was because of the, it was because of right, the MRI. But, but so, payers, payers use these, rule, rule, will use this guess, information okay, so, as they need, right? Yeah. I mean, like I always say, I, I know, I, we, we all I mean, take guidelines very seriously, Valve guidelines, and my frustration, I think we all share this frustration, is payers will, you know, will use guidelines to deny care at times and will ignore guidelines at times when care should be given. Um, like the whole idea of you need to fail oral medications, three oral medications at least before to go on to a third tier therapy, there's nothing in any guideline that would remotely suggest that. There's nothing in any study that remotely suggests that's needed. Yeah. Someone made that shit up. I so, mean, so one other, um, one other, uh, just interesting point is that 100 units. By the way, if you put, how many of you put 100 units into 10 cc's when you do an idiopathic? Yeah, so that I do that. That's all off label, by the way. Yeah. You realize yeah. because the studies, the original studies Wait, that's were. My slides. I'm gonna talk oh, about. Oh, sorry. That. I stole his thunder. It's funny. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let David sense. take over on the Botox side. Yeah, let's let. But let you know, I was going to say that I, I I watched a talk earlier today, a great talk, um, on and reasonable construction. But the the speaker said, um, if we all just practice guidelines, where is going to be the innovation? 
I thought that was a very uh, interesting comment. So I'll let David talk about Botox here. Now, mind you, as of June 1st, I will be in charge of the practice guideline <laughs> committee with the AUA, so I take the guidelines and, very and the three seriously. three of us help lead all the guidelines um, in various So we're going to talk about cytotoxin, toxin, <laughs> dilution, dose, template, all these things. So, um, so prep. So it's 100, 200 units. And, you know, to me, I use one of those two doses. Um, diluting it with saline, don't shake your vial. It's a light chain, a heavy chain. If you shake your vial, you're going to disrupt that disulfide bond. You're going to lose the heavy chain and light chain heavy chain connection. It's not going to work. Um, lidocaine in the office. So you know, in in my practice, I come in and the medication has been mixed. The patient has been given lidocaine as a prep. The scope is laid out. The, the needles are ready. We'll talk about needles. So my time is less than five minutes. Um, um, but you need your nursing staff to be able to help set that up to make that efficient. Um, at one of my, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a county facility, and our nurse is there for reasons, just because it's a county facility, they make up dumb rules. Um, the doctors have to mix the botulinum toxin, so whatever it may be. So I've, I know how to mix it too. But yeah, I think you got to talk about scopes and needles because there are a variety of options. So he, here's an example of an injection. This is me using a flexible cystoscope, an Olympus needle on a Parkinson's woman who was probably, probably because I was running late in my office, a couple hours late for her Parkinson's medication. So you, you see, see is, I am not doing this like on a boat in the middle of a hurricane. She's shaking because she's due for her Parkinson's medication. So depending upon the patient doing zero, 0 0.5 to 1 in cc per injection, um, 10 to 20 sites, we're going to talk about the use of the trigone injection. Um, you know, I always say I want to get just like a subtle rise when I do the injection, and I think that's really important, and I emphasize that to the residents. But then again, I'm talking from both sides of my head. I'm actually not sure that it matters. Um, when the studies were first done to get botulinum toxin FDA approved, there are a lot of study sites that came in that had zero, zero experience using botulinum toxin injection. I've been using it for multiple years already. So I would talk on the phone to some of these new injectors. And based on what they were asking me, I'm guessing their injection locations and depth were certainly not optimal. And Allergan did a study and and, 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 and and trial investigator site had no impact on outcomes. Um, so in terms of scopes, in my office, I use flexible scope, 100%, because it's the only scope I have. <laughs> we don't have rigid scopes in the office. Um, and interesting, in one office, we have a disposable scope. I'm not sure if, are you guys using the disposable flexible scopes? Mm -hmm. So they're great. Sometimes. What I have recently learned is, you know, we, we send them back to whoever the supplier is, and they actually sterilize them and send them back. And when you get that, that second use on the flexible scope, it doesn't turn as well. And it's a wet. I, I didn't realize, I'm kind of the resident's an idiot. What, what, what is he doing? He can't turn and get over to the side. And then I took over. I'm like, oh, I can't do this either. Sorry, man. Um, so, so it's a problem if you're using it for the second time. So when you think about rigid scopes, it's you know, obviously much easier for me. It's so easy to stay on the template with the scope. The needles are the cheapest. You know, when you use those, you can't mess, you can't, you can't, you can't work, damage a working channel with, 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 the, with the scope, and you can do it by yourself. You don't need anyone to assist you. Though in this day and age, at least at our institution, I have to have someone assist me because there's not, there's not a, there, I can't do an exam or a procedure without a nurse in the room to begin with. So it doesn't really matter. Um, we can thank George Tyndale and the whole, 
USC issue with some <laughs> inappropriate exams. Um, but it's, it's probably safe, appropriate for all of us to always have someone in the room. It makes sense, and you're protecting ourselves um, for, for, any, for, for whatever's going on. Um, I use flexible scope. I think for a new injector, it is definitely harder to follow your template if you really want to be really precise with your template. That being said, again, while I get on the residence, I want you to get on that template. I'm not sure it matters. We'll talk about templates. Um, you have to make sure that you, that you protect your working channel, depending upon the needle, how you do that. And, and one of the things that I, I came to learn is, you know, I would have the needle deployed and I take the needle out without taking it back out after I um, finish a scope. And I, you, could, you can damage the working channel just pulling the needle out. So always protect that, um, but you do need a, a third hand to help you with that. Um, so there are three different injections for the flex scope and then for the rigid scope. This is, a, this is the needle I, I, I use. I love the Olympus needle. It was initially a GI needle. Um, this is um, 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 the most expensive needle. Um, but my, my university, I don't think, that, you know, it's by far and away, I think, the best needle. It has the best deflection, and it has the sharpest tip, so it's easier to get in. And, and then when you come with that needle, and you're kind of at that oblique angle, when you hub it, you're almost always at the perfect depth. So always try to kind of come in obliquely, so I'll move the scope around to really go in obliquely, no matter what, wh uh, where I am. And, it's, and, and it allows you to get to anywhere you want to get to um, with that needle. Um, Can you back up one, though? Yes, I can. Please. Um, it also has a sheath that protects your fiber optics. Oh, yeah. So that's an important point. If you're doing that, you can see on the far left picture over here, um, the, the, there, you don't see the needle, then you pop it in and you see the needles out. So when you, you pass the needle, you're passing with a needle in the sheath, so it protects your needle. And then once you're, once you're in the bladder, you pop it out. So it's also the easiest, it's great at protecting your working channel. Just as long as when you also remove your needle, you put the okay. needle back in the sheath. So you have to be careful because if you have a new nursing staff, which we've had a little bit of a change, we have new nurses, they start trying to pull it out and I'm like, no, 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 gotta put it back in the sheath. Um, so, cook needle. This may be the cheapest of the flexible needles. Um, you do have to preload it with the cap on it, then take the cap off and just bring it just in the edge of the flexible scope. Um, so you gotta make to protect yourself. And then the Labry needle, this is this is our second choice. We had a period of time, I don't know if you guys used it, we, we, had, we couldn't get the Olympus needle. Yeah. We were using the Labry needle. Um, we now got, I think we, we have, that hasn't happened for a while now. Um, but this is the other one where you can change the depth of injection. I, I don't think I can deflate, um, deflect the flex scope as easily with the Labry needle. And I don't think the tip is as sharp, but it's a fine needle as well. It works very well. Um, and again, you can bring it into the sheath to protect it. And then this is William's needle, which you can use for a rigid scope and it's dirt cheap. So, you know, if you, if you happen to have rigid scopes in your office, certainly for female patients, um, it makes sense to do that because it's going to be much cheaper. You're not going to, there's no risk of injuring your working channel. Um, I think this one has a three and a five French and just sometimes a three French if they have it to you. It's, it's kind of flimsy, so yeah. if you have the opportunity, the five French. They, so, I've only used the five French. I didn't realize. Yeah, there's yeah. a three because they've handed it to me, and I'm like, why is this thing so bad? <laughs> and it's clearly. Yeah, okay. You were going to say something, Katie? Oh, I was just going to say, as far as my depth, I don't go in obliquely like that. I use a rigid scope, and it's an injection scope. So, you know, if you do a lot of it, it's probably worth the investment because mm -hmm. you can do it in yeah. like one minute. Quickly. You could do the whole thing. But, but the needle has a little 
marking on it, a little sort of, it gets a little bit wider at the four millimeter mark. So I'll pop it in, you'll feel like this pop into the mucosa and then I back it out. So I'm right about three millimeters, that's where I inject. Yeah, I think and the other important point is when you're doing injections is, so a couple of things I'll do. If the patient sat there for a while longer than I realized and the patient made a lot of urine, I always empty the bladder out because I just want to get the yellow out and have as clear as possible to have optimal visualization. Um, the other is you want to get the optimal fullness of the bladder. I don't want it to be over full because then you've thinned out the bladder wall, easy to potentially pop through the bladder wall. Um, if you don't have it full enough, then you don't have that backboard to push the scope through. So um, it's kind of just one of those things where it's not too hot, not too cold, just right. It's just Goldilocks and yeah, three so bears in I terms mean, of getting I mean, but you'll see that. this ground swell is what I see. And you saw it very nicely in, in David's video. I mean, it's sort of like the ground comes up. Uh, if it's too translucent, like a hydro seal, it's too superficial. If you see nothing, I think you're probably too deep. Again, we don't really know, but I yeah. mean, I back it out just a little bit until you see that yeah, ground swell. We don't so. know. So injection to me. So to, to KK's question that I, I said you're, you're stealing my thunder. I or stole she his said. thunder. So what does the package insert say? So when we got FDA, we did the FDA trials, we were doing 20 injection sites, 0.5 cc's of both either placebo or botulinum toxin. Um, there's no reason to do all those sites. I mean, I think most of us were, are doing, I mean, who, People that use 100 units, how many are doing 10 injection sites? How many are doing 20? So you guys, you guys, are, you guys are very good still sitting by the, the, what the package insert says. Um, I don't know that it matters. Um, I think mo most data that looked at it is not a lot would say it doesn't matter. You know, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. But I think if you wanted to try and go with 10 unit, I mean, 10 injection sites, you'd be fine. And there are folks that even talk about less, doing one to three injection sites, three to four injection sites, depending upon the dose. Um, with showing similar efficacy, although these aren't great studies with placebo and with 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 a trial using the standard dose um, and the, our standard templates, and then a, and, and comparing, but the data seemed to see oh, that works pretty well. Um, you know, in my mind, if you're going to do something alternative, it would be this, and I absolutely try to do this, and we'll talk about this other alternative, which is actually trying to get on the trigone and do some injections at the trigone. Um, do you guys try to go trigonal when you do I it? I do two trigone. Who does? Who tries to get the trigone? Who tries to specifically avoid the trigone? So, so you know, when 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 we first, when botulinum toxin was first used, the reason people said, "Oh, you need to avoid the trigone," was there was a theoretical concern that we we're going to cause reflux if you injected the trigone. Subsequent studies have shown that's not the case. And the question is, you know, how does botulinum toxin work? So we know that you know it impacts um, keep talking proteins, neuromuscular junction, and you don't let the acetylcholine then get delivered at the neuromuscular junction. But there's a lot of thought that a lot of what causes overactive bladder and a lot of the efficacy for botulinum toxin is from an impact on the abnormal sensory output from the bladder and the neurotransmitters that cause abnormal extrasensory output. And if that's the case, where are those neurotransmitters primarily based? In the trigone, mm -hmm. sensory. And there are some people that would tell you that I just think we should just be injecting the trigone. And if you just inject the trigone, you'll have a better response. That, I don't know if that's the case. Um, and the trigone can be very hard to get to depending upon the anatomy. There are patients that I'll look at and like the trigone, and I remember I'm using a flexible scope, but the trigone is really easy to get to, and others where it's like almost impossible to get to the trigone with the flexible scope. And the other issue is it's more vascular. So then you're really like, okay, my first injection right here in the trigone, boom, and it's like, 
you know, floodgates open and it's really bloody. Like, oh shit, now I, I already got three patients in a room. I was gonna do a quick Botox. Now I gotta sit here and hold a little tension with the end of my, end of my, end of my needle to try to stop this for three or four minutes. And yeah, it was three or four minutes, no big deal. But you think, oh my gosh, the patients are upset. You're all waiting in the room. So, so is that, that happens, you know, every now and then. I do Trigon last. I mean, I do all my stuff. Well, you're same. smart. Because you say, okay, you'll bleed, whatever, I'm out of here. Like good, she, she drops, she just drops the scope and walks out, is what she does. Um, so, so this is kind of the idea of that alternative paradigm. Um, and when you look at it, there, there's been one study that looked at this. It was sponsored, of course, by Allergan. And, you know, they thought the efficacy in terms of comparing it to the initial phase three trials was similar. Not one patient required intermittent catheterization. So something to think about if you want to rethink your, uh, your, your paradigm in terms of your injection template, you want to try something different. Um, so I often do try to... Um, do try to get some trigone. Now, what about UTIs and antibiotics? So again, what does the package insert say? First of all, don't use aminoglycosides. So antibiotics are administered one to three days pre and post and on the treatment day. So we're giving more antibiotics for botulinum toxin than theoretically we should be giving for someone's getting a radical cystectomy based on AUA guidelines. Are we giving more antibiotics based on AUA guidelines recommendation for infection than we give someone that gets a PNL prosthesis? So that's a little bit of overkill, right? And, and that's really not what I'm doing. What usually we get, I probably, I'm, we use a quinolone or moving away from quinolone, a little less quinolones now, I mean, or Bactrim or Macrobit or whatever it may be. Um, but one dose, day of, to me, that's adequate, unless you're really worried about something unusual. What, what are you guys doing? So we just did a randomized study. It was a SUFU grant, actually, um, that randomized patients to get no antibiotics versus antibiotics. Um, and, and there was no difference. I mean, now the question, are we powered enough? But it was 140 patients, I believe. It was enough yeah. to probably have shown us if there was going to be some sort of difference. So, so when, when, when your mom comes to get Botox, you're going to tell her to get an antibiotic or not? Yeah, I usually give one dose. That's my routine your mom, practice. I know your mom. She can be really bitter if you, if you gave her Botox and she, she got an infection. She can kick your ass. What is what, what about Santa? Are you doing? You yeah, doing my antibiotic? mom would do the same thing to me. Uh, so I would also use a single dose. Uh, yeah, we're also doing a trial. Ours is one dose versus three days. To David's point, three you know, this days. is uh, people are using three days. We don't use it routinely, but that's kind of the package insert stuff. So um, I think single dose is probably the most one needs to do. I, I also, when I'm not on trial doing this, I, I don't do any antibiotic. Gotcha. So what else in the literature? Okay, let's take a look at that. So um, data that shows that adverse events are not impacted by urine dip. So there are a period of time where we were looking at urines prior to doing botulinotoxin injection, making sure the urine's sterile. And that was especially a comment on patients with neurogenic lower tract dysfunction that were catheterizing. And there were those who were like, I'm going to get the urine sterile before I do them Botox. I'm like, that's ridiculous. They're never going to get them sterile. I, I don't care. I'm not, unless the urine is obviously infected and they tell you that, I'm, I'm injecting. Um, so like we're not even checking urines now. No, like in other words, don't urine. even, you know, just we keep moving things thing, rolling, right? Stop checking they're not urines. Symptomatic. Not symptomatic. No. The nurse can ask that. And if not, go ahead and keep rolling. So Brazilian study looked at single day versus three days um, versus profile and found that actually more, more UTIs with longer antibiotic use, which seems interesting. And then the other one shows three days of quinolone superior to a single dose of F-triaxone. And then the last one that I think is really fascinating is there's, and there's another, a couple of studies that have shown this, is that in the neurogenic patient population is that when we actually 
nothing to do with antibiotics, but when you treat with botulinum toxin, their risk of UTI goes down, probably just related to now that you've made that bladder a happier place, a less unhappy bladder, less intrusive activity, better compliance, whatever it may be, and put them less at risk for having a urinary tract infection. Um, okay, so catheterization. So this is from package insert for neurogenic 200 units 30.6 placebo, 6.7. So first of all, there's a 6.7% rate of needing catheterization for a placebo injection. How is that possible? And the reason that possible is we didn't do a great job when this, we designed the trial. There was no clear-cut definition of when to start CIC. And this trial had two groups of patients, if you remember, spinal cord injury and MS. And the MS patients were a fair number that came on that weren't catheterizing at baseline. And the reality is when you look back at the data, some of them probably would have benefited from being catheterization at baselines. So we just tipped them over the edge. Um, or not tipped over the edge, but like they probably shouldn't be catheterizing baseline to begin with. So like I tell patients about a 25%. I just kind of take off that six and make a 25 and make it simple. If we do 200 and you're not catheterizing at baseline in terms of needing to catheterize. Um, and that's why if you are neurogenic and you aren't voiding, and you are voiding, unless you really want to catheterize, which no one comes to my office and says, Dr. Ginsburg, I really want to start CIC. We'll start at 100 units. Um, and then, and uh, that's weird. Um, ooh, look at that. That's all funky. So, Dave, they come in and you do 100 units. How are you discussing their next injection? Are you just saying, hey, we'll, you know, in other words, I'm a little better. I'm still leaking. I mean, like, how does that dialogue go? Well, it's kind of like we talked about neuromodulation. So you did well with 100 units. Where are you with your medication? I mean, that's, we didn't even talk about what to do with medications. So if, if I give someone's already on medication and they do great, I ask them to come off the medication. Hmm. And, if they, and they say, we can always go back on if you, if you need it, but if you don't, come off the medication. And when you start to see that your symptoms are coming back, restart your medication, give us a call, we'll get you in for your injection, okay? Now, if they're already on medication, and they're at 100. Then again, the question is, okay, do you want to go to, two, are you, if you're not happy and you want more, are we going to go to 200, which I'll go to 200 in an idiopathic non-neurogenic patient with the understanding that the risk of needing catheterization will be higher versus another other third-tier option? Anything different? No, I think, you know, you always want to hear that if you're going to go to higher doses, like, it helped, but I was looking for more. Well, then, okay, that's an easier one, right? Because then 200 units, we know the more Botox you use or antibiotic toxin, the more you use, the better it's going to work at, at the risk of emptying problems. So, so when you're deciding 100 versus 200 in the neurogenic, you know, so 100 is for your volitional avoiding, low PVR, you, can, don't, you want to avoid CIC or you can CIC, um, and then 200 if you're already on CIC, you want maximum efficacy. Now, that last bullet on the, on the left there, what if unable to CIC? So my, my point of this is, you know, Mr. Jones comes in, he's 82 years old, has Parkinson's, um, has terrible urgency and urgent continence. He's not going to ever be able to catheterize. He's not going to get anything else. He doesn't want to do neuromodulation, not going to be a candidate for neuromodulation. If he fails this, what are his options? Well, it's live like you are, condom catheter put in a, a suprapubic tube. So our next step's going to be a suprapubic tube anyway if he would do that. Then why not try botulinum toxin? Because at least you've given it a try, and maybe it'll be a home run. I, I would say these are not patients. I mean, for, first of all, there's no home runs in Parkinson's patients ever. These are the most challenging patients we see with, with neurogenic or tract dysfunction, no doubt about it. Between cognition issues, mobility issues, you know, you can help that urge, they still can't get to the bathroom in time. 
time, yeah, both urgency and incomplete bladder emptying. But you know, if you help them out adequately that he or she's happy, great. If not, you always can go back to the suprapubic tube as needed. So. Now, um, if you've got the suprapubic tube um, open to gravity, their bladder, their bladder, their urine storage facility is now the bag. Do they even always need onobotulinum toxin? They might not. Well, if we're going to do a suprapubic tube, no. We're no, because it's just a conduit, right? I mean, unless they're leaking oh. through the penis around the catheter or something, then, then right. you still want to inject them. But right. you may be able to get away with just that. The, the, the bladder becomes a conduit, basically, and then the right. storage facility becomes I the bag. I think we have a... a fair amount of these SP tube patients that either have leakage around the tube or leakage per urethra despite Oh no, we, we'll do that in SP tube patients right? as well every yeah. now and then. So not and uncommonly. If, right, right. Um, and you'll just go right up to 200 units. Yeah, oh, right? sure. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no point in yeah, doing there's no 100 reason you units, want to right? just quiet down that. I mean, like, I'll use off-label, I'll use botulinum toxin in a couple, like, those patients that have the devastated outlet, I'm doing a bladder neck closure. You know, yeah. what's the biggest risk of a bladder neck closure? is that bladder neck closure breaks down. Why is that bladder neck closure breaking down? Well, it's because the bladder is still trying to contract and push out that area. So if I'm ever doing a bladder neck closure, I'm Botoxing the bladder at the same time. Um, if you have a difficult fistula, um, I may consider even doing it on a fistula pair because I want less bladder contraction, more quiet bladder to allow things to heal. Those are not, you know, those are again off-label options, but things to consider as well, where you might get some help with the botulinum toxin injection. Um, so for seeing po patients po post back, uh, po post injection, I'll see them back in two weeks. Um, you know, the issue is, you know, what do we do with elevated residuals? And the reality is, sometimes, who cares? Um, you know, there's a bunch of studies out there, a variety of studies I will not name that are, to me, very frustrating, where patients are started on catheterization no matter what their symptoms are because they have a PVR greater than 250 cc's and it's deemed as urinary retention. And I think we all know if you're doing botulinum toxin in, in your office, patients come back and they may have a PVR of 275 or 300, they're like, doc, I'm great. So I, I, made every sing I would make every single new patient come back at two weeks. What I tell them now is I want to see you back in two weeks. But if, you, if in two weeks' time you're doing great and your symptom, you're very happy with your symptoms, let's make it a telemedicine. Because the reality is, I'm not getting, I don't, do I care what the PVR is? Is it going to change anything? And I don't care if the PVR is 500. If they're great, I'm not going to start catheterization. No, 500, that's not going to happen. But I mean, certainly it's 250, 300. I've seen plenty of patients with PVRs of 250, 300 that are very, very happy with their outcomes. 100%. I think the thing is the sequela, right? If they're getting UTIs, not at two weeks, but if they're yeah. getting UTIs or they're leaking, or you know, then you want to check it out. But really, I agree with you. You don't have to bring them in for PVR. We used to do that because that's what we were told to do. I don't think it's really necessary clinically if they're doing yeah. okay symptomatically. And then... If you have someone on regular injections, I mean, once they're in their regular injection, you don't see them back. Yeah. It's like it's, I just see you when it's time for the injection. It's like a haircut appointment. And, and, and you've got to figure next. out how you're going to do that. There are certain patients that really want to be every six months, whether they need it or not. And there are others that I'm like, well, you know, if you want to, we can do it every six months. Or if you want to, you just call me. You give the office a call. We'll get you in when your symptoms are ready. I let the patient choose what they want to do. Because um, the patients that are responsible, they, they much prefer to say, because look, if you look at the, st the data, a third of patients are going to have duration for at least nine months, if not more. So it can absolutely last for more than six months. Um, and remember, your diabetics are a bigger concern. If you look at the phase three trials, it certainly was a, a greater risk of needing, for, needing catheterization in the diabetic patient population. Um, so potential concern. So who are we going to be concerned we're going to do an injection on? So... 
not surprisingly, more likely in men than women. Men are more likely to have some degree of obstruction than women. Um, and there's a variety of data that it looked at this. Um, you know, one, so studies show great improvement, quality of life, BL, uh, bladder outlet obstruction index did not predict the need for CIC. Um, others, male gender, not response, not as good, greater risk CIC of men, uh, lower Qmax or prior hysterectomy. Uh, and then again, male patients now with a higher BOI, now on the flip side, less of a, a, a optimal response rate and a higher complication rate. So, um, you know, again, we talked about urodynamics. If there is that question, is this patient obstructed or is this patient having just overactive bladder symptoms to choose or overactivity, this may be a place where urodynamics may be helpful. Or sometimes, I mean, so I, you get that patient where, you know, you, you do urodynamics on the male patient, he has significant to choose overactivity and he has equivocal bladder outlet obstruction. Okay, well, what am I going to do? And, and often I'll say, well, let's try botulinum toxin. And I'm looking at it as both a treatment and a test. Treatment, we're going to help your symptoms. If you go into retention after botulinum toxin, we probably got to do something for your prostate with your equivocal bladder outlet obstruction. So it may help give you information as what your next step may be if they don't have a good response to begin with. So what's the right or wrong patient? You know, to me, the optimal patient is overactive bladder, urgency urinary incontinence. If you do urodynamics, and certainly there is no indication you do urodynamics at all in the standard overactive bladder patient, but if you've done urodynamics and they have the true overactivity, that's a great patient. You know, I, I didn't talk about compliance. This is not approved for low bladder compliance. We certainly can see improvement in some patients with suboptimal bladder compliance but it's certainly not the same home run that we often see with the true overactivity. And if a patient has poor bladder compliance that is in a concerning range where you're worried about their upper, tract, upper tracts and they have a good clinical response to botulinum toxin, it would behoove you to repeat your dynamics and make sure their bladder storage pressures are now in appropriate range. Um, able only to do CIC as we talked about in the neurogenic patient population. You know, you can or consider it CIC, may not be the optimal candidate. And again, if there's no other option, what's the worst case scenario? Just you put a urethral catheter in and it'll, it will pass. Um, if you're looking for bowel help, we talked about that. that that's a neuromodulation patient. I and mean, that's just a no-brainer. Um, high PVR baseline, you know, be careful in those patients that are obstructed after um, uh, baseline. And then lastly, just one slide on um, Botox after SNS failure. Um, this was done, in, and you can look at these slides, to look at this data in two ways. You'd say, wow, just 43% success, that's not very good, um, versus, well, you've already failed oral meds, you've already failed neuromodulation, you know, what's left? and you're helping four out of 10 patients who otherwise had nothing else, that's not terrible. Not great, but not terrible. Um, so something to consider. So, you know, again, there's plenty of data studies that go, you know, neuromodulation after Botox failure or Botox after neuromodulation failure. You know, it's something to consider. Um, so I think we talked about follow-up and next appointment. Yeah. Um, you guys do anything? How do you, how do you tell patients what to do for your... Patient's doing well on initial botulinum toxin injection. So Mrs. Jones come in, she had an injection two weeks ago, she's great, symptoms a lot better, PVR is 10 cc's. What's, what's the follow-up? 
Uh, I tell her, let's make an appointment for six months for your next Botox injection, on a botulinum toxin injection. If your symptoms come back before that, give us a call. If we're approaching that appointment and you feel like you're still doing good, just call us and we'll bump it out a month because I don't want to drop them through the cracks. So, but we see you in six months. Right. Stand up. Yeah. Same. Same exact thing. Right. I mean, you always, you know, I always get concerned about, and I don't think I've seen this, but the patients that, you know, we do the botulinum toxin when you're having four episodes of incontinence a day, whatever, making it up. And the patient wants to come in before, like they're having one episode of incontinence a month. So now you're adding on to a spot now, not from their baseline, are we then adding on botulinum toxin and putting them at risk for retention? Because now you're kind of adding on the botulinum toxin still working. I, I've never, I've not seen that to be the case. Yeah. So yeah. I think about it, but I, I agree. I, I've not seen it. Because it's theoretical. I, I don't, you know, yeah, it's probably more theoretical. Yeah. So I think in the last few minutes before we take the post-test, I'm one, going to... take home. Oh, do you want to do the implantable? Well, yeah. I was just going to... Yeah, I was going to say Sandy's going to go over the yeah, implantable yeah. Yeah. PTNS. Yeah. Um, just to tell you what's on the... It's not even on the horizon. This time okay. last year we were given the talk and it was still on the horizon, but now it's here. Um, and so let's learn about it and the differences between the couple right. of systems. So you're going to hear more about this over time. Um, there was a recently uh, approved FDA device for this. And so just understand that as the other ones potentially come out, not FDA approved quite yet, there's going to be a conversation about suprafascial. So imagine in the ankle, no surprise, there's a fascia layer. The nerve is below the fascia. So there's some people who want to keep it on the simpler side saying stay above the fascia, insert this device one way, shape or form. And then there's another one placed a little closer to the nerve, but it's a little bit more involved. In other words, it's infrafascial, so below that. And, and it's about keeping proximity to the tibial nerve and how close is that and, and things like that. So kind of the conversation piece is a similar case like this. You know, 64-year-old woman who's failed two meds, not interested in the current three OAB therapies, um, and, and it's read on Google that there may be some new options. How would you guide her on these potential therapies? So uh, this is the one that's approved uh, by the FDA now, uh, the Valencia Technologies as the e-coin. It's the electroceutical coin. Basically, think of, a, of a, co a coin, you know, going in, maybe not your sock, but deeper than that, into the skin, just above the ankle in the area of the posterior tibial nerve distribution. Um, so it's an office-based subcutaneous implant. So you can see the pictures here are pretty easy. They have a little template marker that you're going to mark. You're going to make a small incision, and it helps you create a pocket. You deliver this thing inside, irrigate, close. I mean, it's a pretty simple procedure. And this thing basically is going to periodically deliver stimulation that will then stimulate that nerve to get your long-term benefit. And I believe they're saying the, the device lasts about three years, right? Three, three to five is what they're saying. Three to five. And we shall see. So with this kind of continuous low-voltage, it's actually con not a continuous. I think it's intermittent uh, low-voltage stimulation, and, and that's how it lasts as long. Um, they like the fact that it's fairly consistent and, and reproducible in terms of its actual placement, and it's not major surgery uh, in order to do so, to place it near the nerve. When you look at some of their trial data, it's actually pretty good. Um, you see a lot of patients have gotten significant enough improvement you know, with their symptoms of up to 50 to 75% improvement uh, you know, with the majority of their patients. So patients have overall done pretty well with overall high satisfaction. Um, they didn't have to have a whole lot of programming and reprogramming done. So uh, it'll be an interesting one. Uh, they're, they're just now getting started in their marketing efforts and 
and educating physicians to to learn how to do their therapy. So that one, uh, again, I think will be an interesting one. Another one that's actually going through the FDA approval process uh, is by Blue Wind Technologies, a company out of Israel. It's an implantable unit, and this is proximity to the nerve. This one's infrafascial, so in other words, it's through the fascia, so a little bit more involved in terms of its placement, whereas the Valencia technology one is suprafascial, but it's a little farther away from the nerve. So with this, the current... Um, Research trial involved uh, placement of the device and then twice a day stimulation for 30 minutes, and that was the protocol. The original data showed a pretty high improvement when you look at some of the recent stuff. In fact, they are presenting on Sunday here at the AUA. Uh, 151 patients in centers around the, uh, around the country, including USA and Europe. Uh, 30 minutes twice a day, 50% reduction in urgent continence versus baseline was our kind of primary outcome measure. Uh, and, and then this is a fairly incontinent patient population, so at baseline 4.8 urgent continence episodes per day or 10 voids a day, and 10 voids a day, I should say. 76% at six months and 78% at 12 months in, in, in intention to treat analysis with no serious adverse events and uh, an overall 50% dry rate at 12 months on the three-day diaries. So interesting stuff. I think this is going to be a, a big question, you know, where is this going to fit in our algorithms? And I, I don't know if I have a good answer. Any thoughts no, on I mean, how I it... I think it is going to be a game changer because the whole reason why PTNS hasn't taken off, really, in my opinion, is because patients don't want to come see you every week for 12 weeks and then every month for the rest of their life. I mean, that's crazy, right? So now that they can walk away with it and get their, get their stimulation, I think that's going to fit into this, depending on the efficacy, which the preliminary data seems to be quite promising. I mean, you know, I think patients will sacrifice 100% drive for some convenience and minimal invasiveness. And so at the end of the day, it's just going through the journey with your patients. I mean, you see here, they're all great options for different reasons. There are some like dual incontinence where it doesn't make sense to do on a botulinum toxin, but, you know, all things equal. It's a little bit of style, you you know, it's a little bit of tailoring it to each patient and really thinking about what's going to be the best for each of your patients. Well, I think the other question that we don't know the answer to is, you know, well, should we be doing an implantable or any type of tibial nerve before you would fail a medication? I mean, what's, what's better for the patient long term? We don't, and, and I'm not saying that, just as a theoretical, th you know, uh, you know, viewpoint here. I mean, taking medication once a day, um, anticholinergics, potential issues with cognitive issues mm -hmm. down, the, down, down the road. Do, do better just putting a little implant in that's done very easily. Um, one of the challenges we're going to have is this is new technology, so there's coding issues and reimbursement issues that we're going to have to get around. And, and AUA is well aware of this and certainly involved in trying to represent us as uh, as a group in urology to try to optimize our ability to code and get reimbursed for this. All right, so I mean, this just says it all here is like there's pros and cons to each for different patients. Just really, you know, put it in a grid like this if you if you need to for a given patient. Say, what are the pros for this patient for this particular therapy? What are the cons? And kind of balance it out, go through it with them. Um, I think it's very, it's very logical, and I think it's very helpful to go through this exercise. But I think we're well equipped now. I mean, I remember when I was in training, and we had oxybutynin, and then we had augmentation cystoplasty, and that's all we had when that's we were right, in training. Right. And so now to see that the world has evolved so quickly and on, on behalf of our patients, I think it's fantastic for us to have an armamentarium that we can feel confident, confident is you know, offers them successful options. It's very satisfying for everybody involved, I think. So I think we need to go to the, um, to that's what we just said. Any questions? Any questions before we go to the quiz? 
you guys have been a really great audience for two hours listening to this, but hopefully, hopefully you got some little tricks. Let's go through the, um, let's go through the quiz here. Do you have to open that up? Where's the, where's the chat? See if you got any questions. Katie, where's the chat? Sandy's going to check the chat. All right, so if we can go to the questions one more time for the post-test. Hopefully, you guys, hopefully you didn't know all the answers to begin with. That's the, and hopefully you know them all now. <clears throat> Maybe. Uh, okay. Oh, QR code. So I guess you have to scan that. I'm going to give you a second to scan that. And we'll finish it in seven minutes or less. Okay. Is set? So if I click to the next thing, though, it's not going to show them the... Well, I'll, let's see. I'll give. I'll leave this up for a second, and then we'll do the poll. Is that what we should do? Yes, I'm not sure. The PowerPoint is all however it's set up. Once it's submitted through there, nothing can change. Okay. I mean, I'm just wondering because if I flip it to the next one that says the. But it's not show well, okay, let's see how what happens here. So a 57-year-old female desires to undergo PTNS for her refractory OEB symptoms. She wants to know which is a contraindication to therapy. Unilateral below the knee amputation, cardiac pacemaker, prior on a botulinum toxin, history of cognitive dysfunction, or aspirin therapy. So I'm gonna try flipping it to the next one, but have your answers in your head. See, it's not really showing me. Yes. I mean, but I just, we just sent in the PowerPoint and it was supposed to be put, it, that's fine. So, um, so the answer, does anybody want to volunteer what they put in there? Pacemaker, cardiac pacemaker, so good. So everybody knows that everything else is fine. All those other ones are not uh, contraindications. When counseling a 43-year-old woman who wishes to have the treatment that best addresses dual incontinence, one should recommend dietary modification and pharmacotherapy, PTNS, monobotulinum toxin, or sacral neuromodulation. D's and dog? B's and boy? D's and dog. Yep, sacral neuromodulation, that's rough, the one. Rough, rough. Rough, rough. <laughs> Ruff, ruff. Okay, a 61-year-old woman with overactive bladder is undergoing posterior tibial nerve stimulation weekly. She's on her fourth week and feels minimal clinical benefits so far. Her UA is negative, post-fluid residual 65. The next step is, so either continue PTNS weekly, increase the amplitude, change PTNS to the contralateral leg, ankle, change to sacral neuromodulation, or add on a botulinum toxin. A, right, continue PTNS weekly. That is what the data shows that a lot of people will actually benefit by the 12th week, so. 
It sounds like you're trying to sell them a bag of goods, though. If you say it that way, you know, like, hey, you got to stay on it. It's going to work by 12 weeks. And what if it doesn't, right? But, but that is what the data shows. Um, a 46-year-old woman has refractory OEB. And, and so to comment on that, though, when you have the continuous stimulation or the implantable intermittent stimulation, that might change. I think that that's one of those reasons why it might be a game changer. OK, so she's got refractory OEB. She's interested in undergoing on a botulinum toxin uh, for the bladder, but is also receiving on a botulinum toxin for migraines. I think we did not cover this. The next step is either increase her anticholinergics on a botulinum toxin is not an option for her. Proceed with 50 units, proceed with 100 units, or before bladder injection, check with her neurologist to ensure she would not exceed 400 units per three months. That last one is the, is the answer. It used to be 360, it's now 400 units. So if they're getting migraine stuff or they're getting stuff in their face, although in your face you're not gonna get 100 units, but, or your face would never move again, but um, that just cumulatively they should not exceed 400 units in a three month period of time. So just know that and coordinate. If they're getting stuff for contractures or something, you have to be careful about that. Um, but that's just the number to know. A 39-year-old man with refractory OAB is undergoing sacral neuromodulation lead placement. Stimulation of a secret needle placed in his low back elicits bellows only. The next step is, and I think we didn't cover that specifically either, but for those of you who do sacral neuromodulation, bellows only is, well, I'll wait until you guys think about it. This is like fair game for an exam if there's any residents and fellows in here, but or probably I don't know if they would do it for research. But uh, move the needle down, move the needle up, increase the frequency, uh, turn up the stimulation, or decrease pulse width. Any takers? Move the needle up one level. Yeah. So bellows only is going to be four. Um, you're looking for three, which is going to be bellows and great toe plantar flexion. If you're in two, it's going to be like this sort of twisting hip flexion. You know, the calf will, will contract or the whole leg will kind of rotate a little bit. Um, so just keep that in mind. Okay. Question six out of seven, I believe. A 60-year-old man has done well with sacral neuromodulation for his non-obstructive OAB for five years. He presents after a fall skiing, describing that his OAB symptoms have returned. He's on program one. Impedances are greater than 4,000 ohms in electrodes zero and one, and 500 in, leads to, in electrodes two and three. The next step is increase the amplitude, change the battery, trial lead zero or one, trial lead two or three, or remove the lead and place a new one. Who says A, B, C, D, yay, E, yeah, so you use the one, you know, 4,000 ohms is, is, you know, the, is impedances, is blocked, the circuit's broken. 500 is perfect, so you can use the good electrodes, you don't have to change the whole lead. Okay, now if they're all over 4,000, you got to change the lead, because you're kind of out of luck. So last question, a 35-year-old woman wishes to undergo a third-line therapy for refractory overactive bladder. Which is the best approach to counseling her on her options? Describe options in a very clinical, scientific language so she takes you seriously. Present options thoroughly using relatable analogies. Don't tell her too much or it will scare her away. Give her pamphlets and websites and tell her to come back with any questions or advise her to talk to the company rep. This is, I'm, I'm giving you a gift on the way out. So. <laughs> You know, find whatever analogy you like, Oreo cookies, you know, colonoscopy sedation, that sort of thing, just to make it a little less ominous to them. 
Um, and I think what we try to avoid is like needles in the spine, stuff like that. That probably yeah. doesn't go over so well. Agreed. Toxin. <laughs> yeah, paraparalysis, you know, computer in your butt, that kind of stuff. You don't want to say that. So um, thank you so much. Uh, we really, we have fun doing this, and I hope thank you learned you. something. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the meeting.